it's more in their interest for us to believe that they're gods, that they're so superior to us that we have no choice, that they're doing us a favor when they do the things they do, that they come from another planet, that they come from far, far away. All these things, to me, are no different than the guy who wants to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. Ladies and gentlemen, we Some of these people, whoever, whatever they are, they have reached a level of sophistication technologically where they can live wherever they want to. And they have elected, for reasons of safety, for reasons of being removed from cosmic radiation, for reasons of seeing uh, the surface world as a resource, that they can uh, come and take whatever they want to whenever they want to. They have removed themselves from the surface because it's more secure, they're less likely to be seen and interfered with if they're up to something that you know, they, they know that we won't like. They're using us as a resource. So they've taken the logical step of, of basically treating us like almost like we treat animals on a preserve. People, they claim they want to find out what the truth is, but then they're completely willing to believe whatever they're told by whatever anomalous phenomena they're dealing with, it tells them something, they say, oh, okay, that must be true, because it said so. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Clearly, a lot has gone down in the world since the last time you heard from me. Specifically, for the folks who are listening in the distant future, I am talking about the Boston Marathon bombings, which happened about two weeks ago, and since BOA is really only a stone's throw from Boston, it was a tremendously surreal period of time, and one that continues to be surreal as the days and weeks unfold. So I had to take a brief moment to step back from the program and really just live in the moment and watch it all go down. I have a myriad of thoughts on all of this, but you are tuning in for a fresh edition of Banal of America Audio, so I will save all of that discussion and rumination for you at the end of the program. Here on this installment of BOA Audio Season 7, we are taking a journey to the underground as we welcome author William Michael Mott for a discussion on his book Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures, which looks at the possibility that there is an entire ecosystem, including nefarious entities, existing beneath the Earth's surface. And what I think will surprise you as this gets going is how quickly we settled into a jam session style of conversation. We really connected right from the very beginning and started going down all sorts of different side roads and loosely followed the notes of the program 
but really had a tremendous conversation nonetheless. Over the course of the next two hours or so, we are going to discuss caverns, cauldrons, and concealed creatures, as well as Mike's recently released treatise, The Problem of Density, in regard to non-human encounters. Very heady stuff, but also very fascinating stuff. Since this ended up being more of a jam session than an interview, it's hard to really pinpoint specific big points which we discussed, but here are a handful. We are going to revisit the global historical narrative, which tells of this underground world. We'll learn about how so-called ETs, may very well be homegrown entities deceiving humans, and how Bigfoot, elementals, and diminutive esoteric entities like elves and gnomes may fit into this ecosystem, as well as, of course, tons and tons more. Additionally, we are going to break the fourth wall and discuss the current state of paranormal research and how reality TV has both helped and hindered the quest to solve esoteric mysteries. Altogether, it is a fast-paced and loose edition of the program, which takes you to the very periphery of the paranormal and peers into the abyss with our guest, William Michael Mott. For those of you who are unfamiliar with William Michael Mott, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. William Michael Mott is a writer and artist who has five books and many magazine features in print. He's written about paranormal phenomena, comparative myth, religion, and folklore, UFOs, cryptozoology, pulp, adventure, sci-fi, and fantasy fiction, and art and education topics. He has been a guest on over 30 national and international syndicated radio programs, and currently he's one of the co-hosts at Unraveling the Secrets, which can be heard at UnravelingTheSecrets.com. He has also been the creative director for a national toy and manufacturing company, a software company. The art director for a city newspaper has worked as an artist designer for Fortune 500 companies, an NSF engineering research center, and for a variety of clients such as book and magazine publishers. Mike is also a freelance artist and writer and writes both fiction and non-fiction. His artwork has been featured in various art shows, including one-man exhibits and digital galleries in various venues. He loves his kids and really, really likes books on a myriad of topics, as well as dogs and edged weapons. In addition to his illustration work and writing, he crafts handmade shillelaghs and walking sticks upon occasion. His personal website is www.mottimorphic.com. Pretty simple, but let me spell that one out for you. M-O-T-T-I-M-O-R-P-H-I-C dot com. There you can find info about his writing and a gallery of his artwork can be found as well. He also has a Facebook fan page, which is linked from mottimorphic.com, and he can be reached via his website. Be sure to check it out. With all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 15th, 2013. William Michael Mott, talking about caverns, cauldrons, and concealed creatures on VOA Audio, 
Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of VOA Audio Season 7. And I am very excited about this edition of the program. Actually, it was spawned by a BOA Audio listener because we talked about the Hopkinsville Goblin story that came up uh, in 2012 on our year in review episode. And somebody wrote in and said that we should talk to William Michael Mott because he's the man behind the book Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures. And I looked into it, and I, as I said on the program when I read the email, I are you kidding me? That sounds awesome. I cannot wait. i got to have this guy on the program. So now it's all come together here. He's here on the show. He's got a new, I guess you could call it a treatise out, if you will, sort of a mini book titled uh, The Problem of Density in Regard to Non-Human Encounters. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about caverns, cauldrons, and concealed creatures and get into all this stuff that may be lurking beneath our feet. It's a very chilling book. It's a very amazingly well-researched book and uh, just is tremendously thorough, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. So I cannot wait to tackle this stuff with him. William Michael Mott, long time overdue here to have you on the program. I'm really excited about it. Thank you for coming on BOA Audio. Thanks a lot for inviting me, man. I've, I've been listening to your show off and on for years, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. Now, we usually start out with the bio, the background, you know, who is... William Michael Mott, how did you get interested in all this esoteric stuff? And, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your evolution as a, as a student of the arcane, if you will. Well, you know, I've always been uh, interested in this stuff. I've, you know, I started at an early age as a reader and a writer, even as a child, you know, reading about myths and legends and, and of course, science fiction and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, when I reached a certain point, I started exploring Fortean uh, phenomena. I think it probably started with reading some scholastic books when I was a kid, you know, by Frank Edwards, like Strangely Enough, Stranger Than Truth, things like that. And and then, you you know, you kind of graduate from there to, as you get older to things like John Keel, writers like John Keel and, and Brad Steiger and, and you know, the, the great ones, mm-hmm. as I call them. And, you know, for the longest time, I've always worked as a writer and an artist, and I, w- I would hear all these various theories out there where people were, were taking old, old phenomena and it's being presented as new. Oh, this is just now being discovered. Look what's happening. What are these, you know, what's the ex- possible explanation? And, you know, I, I knew from, from years and years of personal research that these things were very old and they'd always been around. There was nothing new to any of this stuff, whether you're talking about, you know, unknown humanoids or UFOs or, or you know, just about any type of anomalous phenomena. It exists in the historical record and in the anecdotal record going as far back as, as humanity goes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I thought about it for a while and finally I decided, I guess about, uh, 1999 or so to start writing about it. So I wrote a first edition of a book called Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures. And then that grew and it became a second edition because, you know, I wrote so many more articles and, you know, I did so much more research even after that. And, so now it's in the, the third expanded edition, and I've changed publishers because, honestly, the first publisher was not paying me my royalties, um, and we had some disagreements, and you know I'm still having some problems with, with that individual. But I've got a new publisher who's got a third edition out, which is much more expansive, much less expensive, and a higher quality product. So Nice. Um, yeah, people can find that. But, but the thing is that, you know, it, it's always interested me that, that there's this dichotomy in, in the human mind. Uh, I think it's a human defensive mechanism, actually, you know, it, it, that our species has, where we want to scoff at these things, we want to dismiss them out of hand, 
want to ridicule people who have the guts to tell about their experiences. And that's not to say there are people who make things up because there are, but there are large numbers of people who don't just make things up. They have had strange experiences and we're not doing anybody a favor if we ridicule those people and, and make them scared to talk and, and tell what's happened to them because it really there's nothing new to this stuff. It's all the same old stuff. And I, I think one of the things we need to shoot for, you know, as the human race is to figure out a way to put an end to some of these things that go on because they seem to be detrimental to us. So, and they always have been. And that's just what I seem to have uncovered anyway as I've studied this stuff. Yeah, I noticed uh, in the book that the, the the term parasitic comes up a lot about these uh, underworld entities, if you will. Yeah. So it certainly yeah. seems to be something that you've uh, you've picked up on. I definitely agree with you. We need to reduce the giggle factor uh, in general on this stuff because the, the only if we're going to get to the bottom of this, we have to treat it openly, honestly, well, and fairly. That's right. And, and I, I think that it's it's a protective mechanism for the collective, you know, human psyche. Yeah. Uh, there are just people who cannot deal. With it, it's easier to ridicule and dismiss and make fun of and, you know, and call names and all this stuff. Because if people had to consider that some of these things might actually be real and might exist, there are people who would not be able to function. It would mess with their worldview too much. It might cause them problems with their religion, even though it shouldn't, because if they really know their religion, they'll know that all this stuff is in every religion. Hmm. It talks about all this, every major religion. Um, but, you know, they, they find that it causes so much personal uh, psychological discomfort that it's easier just to deal with it, you know, whether it's as, a, as an individual or as a society by just kind of downplaying it. I mean, that's why you have, you know, leprechauns on the, from the cereal boxes and Bigfoot selling beef jerky because when you minimize something like that, you, you basically have reduced it from being something to seriously think, seriously think about and consider to something worthy of uh, ridicule and it's fanciful or it's delusional, you know, and, and so it, it creates a barrier, an intellectual barrier and a psychological barrier that people feel comfortable with. Now, at the risk of getting too deep into this uh, concept, I guess you could say, what, what do you think that says about people like you and I that are <laughs> that willingly embrace this this uh, <laughs> this unknown? Well, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't know if you noticed this, but you know, as you read my books. I never say this is the way it is. Hmm. I say, my, my take is basically, it looks like this is the way it is. Right. Evidence indicates this is the way it is. If we study these parallels and this evidence, and we come to a logical conclusion in terms of, like, you know, Occam's razor, then this would seem to indicate that this is what's going on. In other words, you know, I don't know, but I'm trying my best to figure it out. And I don't care what anybody else thinks about that because that's for me. Now, maybe it's weird that I would put it out there for other people to see what I'm thinking, but, you know, if you can help somebody else, if you can do something that to to help somebody else realize what's going on and they're having a hard time with something and nobody's listening to them, then, it, then it's worthwhile to write it down. Does absolutely. That make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we're we're sort of... I hope that someday we'll be seen as the early adopters of this stuff. So hopefully we'll see what happens. But then you know we have a we have a good tradition ahead of behind us. We have going all the way back to Fort, you know, or even further back to uh, Robert Reverend Robert Kirk in, in Scotland in, in the late 1600s. But but we have a tradition ahead of us. People like Brad Steiger, who's still around, and and um, um, John Keel and, and the rest, Ivan T. Sanderson, you know, that that 
did tackle this, and it was somewhat in vogue for a while, but, but uh, you know, it, I think one of the things that's kind of led to the, to the um, dumbing down of the field or some of these rea- so-called reality shows about these topics, uh, you know, they, they're, they're a quick fix with people that think they're experts but don't really do, do little to no research, um, and they just want to be on television. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's the way I see it a lot of times. And so, you know, they reduce it all to the giggle factor through their television programs. I mean, you have people who are hunting ghosts or whatever they're doing or hunting whatever they think are ghosts. They have no way of knowing what they're dealing with because they can't see it. But they're going to take the word of something they can't see that they're setting up with a question-answer section that they can't actually, you know, they can't quantify it enough to even know what they're doing. But they're going to make all these assumptions, and then the so-called investigator will run into a spider or a mouse in the dark and will absolutely freak out. Now, what happens, you know, when, when that investigator actually comes face-to-face with something truly unknown? If it ever happens on camera, I think we're going to see huge stains shooting in every direction because, um, you know, they make a game out of this, and it, and it really is not a game. Definitely not. Definitely not. Now, I agree with you there. I wonder if the... Uh with the exception of the ghost hunting, which has seemed to have spawned all these uh, amateur groups, I wonder sometimes if the if the crypto part of it and the uh, the UFO part of this reality boom is is in a way detrimental in the sense that people get their fix on that stuff and don't actually ever go on to do the research. Do you know what I mean? That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. So we lose out on a generation of researchers who just watch the show and then they get on with their lives instead of actually well, putting the work in to do the research. Well, I'll give you the perfect example. I mean, look, you know, if you you read uh, a good bit of camera, so you know, you know what what my take is. You know, there's ample evidence that there have been previous civilizations on this planet, and there's ample evidence that those civilizations were destroyed. So I think what we're looking at possibly the remnants, many times of whoever those beings or people were, right? And they may still be around. They just kind of lay low um, for whatever their reasons are. So you know. When you start looking at it from that point of view, and then you look at a show like Ancient Aliens, okay, where every possible thing is aliens. We don't know what it is, therefore it must be aliens. That's right. Uh, yep. People were primitive back then, must be aliens. You know, people were not primitive uh, back during the height of, of the Egyptian uh, Empire, the Sumerian Empire, and, and these other things. I mean, they were building pyramids, moving blocks of stone, you know, around Belbeck. Uh, in Lebanon that we cannot move today, okay, building huge platforms out of these things. I mean, we assume that antiquity means people were primitive, but people were not primitive. Everything was not done by aliens, you know. So we we need to to bring a, um, a critical, logical level of analysis to some of this stuff, because if we don't, what happens is it, it's like the person who does claim that they see something and they're just making something up you know, or, or whatever, you know, you have one little bit of stuff in there that, that sort of really casts legitimate doubt on the topic, and to many people that's going to basically just, okay, that, that that was bogus, therefore it's all bogus. Right. You know, it, it discredits it. It discredits the whole the whole thing. And so we have to be very careful about how we uh, how we look at these things. That's right. The unfortunate part is that they're reaching people that aren't amongst, that aren't fellow travelers, if you will, in the unknown. They're, you know, they're reaching the, the lay people. 
who do laugh right. at the whole thing because it all comes off as aliens all the time. So right, yeah, exactly. And, and you know they're gonna they're gonna do that because that's an agenda. You know, there's an agenda there. I mean, you know as well as I do, you know that that in ufology, cryptozoology, anything anomalous, it, it's just like you know they, they okay. This is a problem I have, like with academia. But look, it's not just academia. All these groups that have their belief systems, they have a lot invested in their personal theories. Uh-huh their personal um, agendas, because that's how they go to conferences, that's how they sell tickets, that's how they sell books, you know, and and they're not, they, they, they look very uh, aggressive, they have a lot of aggression toward anything that upsets their, their theory that they're presenting to, to the world. Right. And uh, they're very territorial. And so that's something I try to stay away from because um, I've seen an awful lot and when I see somebody becoming really, really territorial about something anomalous, then that tells me that they probably don't know what they're talking about. Interesting. Interesting perspective, yeah. Or they just have so much invested in it that they're not, <laughs> they don't, you know, they want to yeah. be the uh, the whatever guy. They don't want anyone yeah, exactly. else getting exactly. a piece of their, their pie, even though. Yeah, and that, that's another thing no. that bothers me, you know, is the, in this field, is if you want to call it a field, you know, the people that set themselves up as, as, gurus of a sort, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, what, what's the point of that? That's not a search for the truth when you do that. That's a, that's a search to, that's a quest to promote yourself. Exactly. You know, and, and that bothers me. Let's dive into your, to your recent work first. The problem of density in regard to non-human encounters, because having read, as you said, a good portion of uh, caverns, cauldrons, and concealed creatures, I can see how that sort of grew out of CCCC. Right. So I guess right. tell people about the uh, the new piece here uh, about density because I thought that was really interesting because you know you're, you're trying to get to you're really sort of like honing in on a particular aspect of this that I found pretty uh, pretty intriguing. Right, and you know as you go further into CCCC, you'll see that there are actually areas in there that, that basically talk about this, but not to the depth level of this treatise. I wanted to isolate you know a certain perspective. Um, because I, I think that many of the things that we look at as, you know, supernatural, paranormal, anomalous, and all these things, and they, they, they're supposedly inexplicable, you know, they, they lack, um, you know, they, they just, you know, they don't seem to fit the laws of physics and these types of things. Actually, if we look at them logically, I, I believe they do fit the laws of physics, and they do uh, conform to what we're learning more and more about what natural law is um, in terms of, you know, being on the quantum realm and the on the quantum level, um, you know, a lot of times anomalous phenomena seem to behave as if they are uh, quantum in nature. They almost behave like particles, but in the mac- macro scale rather than the micro scale. Right, um, right. Yeah. They, they react to expectation, just like, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the particle, the electrons did in that, that experiment and as photons do in similar experiments. You know, they, they react as, as, as if they want to respond in a way that they think you expect them to respond, or they will, um, they will, they will exhibit properties and abilities that, that seem to be based more on, um, consciousness than they do on, you know, any, a hard reality. But that doesn't mean they're not real, hmm. you know. It, it's kind of like when, when, uh, uh, when Heisenberg, you know, what he discovered was that, the particle, the particle in his experiment, he had a he had a, a theory, 
and just to make it simple for people, he had a theory that he postulated. And when he ran an experiment, everything worked the way he expected it to every time while he was observing the experiment. But when he left the experiment running and he left the room, so he went to the bathroom or got a cup of coffee, I don't know what he was doing, but he, he left and it wasn't observed, it, would, it, it behaved differently, completely differently. In fact, op- to the opposite of what it was supposed to behave. Uh-huh. And this was on the quantum level. So he figured out through repeatedly doing this that the act of being observed affects reality on the most basic fundamental level, the tiniest level. You know, the, the, the fact that, it, that this experiment apparently knows that it's being observed affects the outcome of the experiment. Now, this is a fact. You know, this isn't just like some, uh, some, some paranormal theory. This is scientific fact. This, is, you know, right, been, right. this has been proven again and again. Well, here's the thing about that, and this, this is what I, where I take this one step further. Okay, once he realized that it behaved differently when it wasn't being observed, there, at that point he expects it, even if it's on an unconscious level, his own expectation is, when I don't observe it, it's going to behave differently. Therefore, it does. Hmm. He, he reinforces it, is what I'm saying. Yeah. His, own, his own awareness, his own consciousness, his own expectation. And I think a lot of times what we see with, with the paranormal, we see the same type of, of behavior. We see the same sort of uh, um, self-reinforcement based on the expectations of the percipients and the experiencers. And, uh, you know, I think this happens with everything from, from humanoids to, uh, to ghosts or whatever you want to call those types of things, appari- apparitions, to other types of strange phenomena. And even things along the lines of, uh, I'm sure you've discussed this on your show before, you know, tulpas, you know, right. the thought form called a tulpa. Well, what if all this stuff, basically that's what it really is. It has its origin on the quantum level. You know, it could be consciousness. It could be consciously aware, but it's not consciousness as we know it. And it's responding to what we put out, and it's, and it's giving it back to us. Right, right. So it's not necessarily like a sentient thing that that knows it's being watched. It's just the natural reaction of whatever sort of etheric thing that's getting put out from the mind when you know you're observing it. Right. Or, or even, you know, it could be to such a level that, you know, there is a, a ground of all being. You know, people talk about, well, obviously I'm talking about God here, a creator. Mm-hmm. You know, his expectation or God's expectation would be imprinted on reality. Okay, that's his expectation of how things are. Therefore, that's how they are because he made it. But who's to say that other expectations, other minds, if we are made in God's image, that our minds can't similarly affect reality, just not on such a huge scale. You know, you look at uh, the idea, first, in Judeo-Christianity of faith. You know, faith can affect reality. You know, if you have faith the size of one mustard seed, you can do this and that. Well, that seems to be exactly what it's talking about. It's talking about faith in God. But still, the idea is that our, our, our expectation, if it's powerful enough, can affect reality. And so, you know, you have to wonder if there are not other minds, not our minds, not human minds, and not God's mind, but other minds out there that also have learned to play this game, and they are very good at manipulating reality using this this, this little secret about the quantum nature of things and, and how you know, consciousness affects it. And that would explain a lot about other types of beings that, that people report encounters with 
who seem to have amazing abilities. It could just be that they have learned to manipulate things on the quantum level, things you know, even their own density. Um, you know, the, the supposed ability of many beings to to pass through solid walls and become solid again. You know, they become ethereal, they pass through, and then they become solid. And you know, or, or you know, recorded instances of of things that show up on uh, um, you know night vision or or even heat heat sensitive equipment, and they show up as solid objects, and when people go out to check it out, it disappears. It doesn't run away. It doesn't fly away. It just disappears. Right. But it was. But it was there. Okay. So there could be, you know, a whole a whole other aspect of this that does conform to the laws of nature. It's just laws that we have not discovered yet. And it's kind of like the Bugs Bunny cartoon or or the the Looney Tunes where somebody tells him that you know he, he's standing in the air and he says, you know, you're defying the law of gravity. He says, well, I, you know, I, I haven't studied law. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's kind of where we are here. You know, I mean, we we don't quite get it because we haven't quite reached that that level of understanding yet. Well, I think that you're, I think that you're absolutely correct in in that sense that there's something going on that that we haven't quite figured it all out. I'm not sure if it was in this piece or if it was in uh, CCCC where I think it was this piece where you quote someone who says, you know, the we we already know everything about the laws of physics, so. The paranormal and supernatural can't be possible. But then you quote like a guy who was studying the speed of light in the late 1800s, and he said pretty much the same thing. Yeah. So it's like science always thinks that we've already figured it all out. It's like the guy who ran the patent office and said they were going to close, you know, at the turn of the 19th to 20th century because everything that could be invented has been invented by now. Well, sure, exactly. You know, there was a guy, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but, you know, he said that we would never uh, exceed the speed of 35 miles per hour because the human body just couldn't take the stress. And we would just, it would just, you know, we die, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that we've got to start looking at this stuff more seriously. It's almost unfortunate that there is such a fascination on the reality television stuff about these topics because I think it does kind of take away the the, uh, the gravitas of, of what we're talking about here. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But that's just the nature of reality TV in general. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah. I hasten to ascribe any sort of agenda behind it only because I, as I, I was on a show recently and kind of made the point that, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. There's yeah. 500 channels. If you look back to when, I, I, you know, I don't know how old you are, but when I was a kid, it was like there was two cooking shows. Now it's like there's 500 cooking shows and probably two cooking yeah. channels. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's only natural that somebody would turn to the paranormal to fill that programming void because, uh, there's only so many honey boo boos you can find. Man, yeah, unfortunately. But anyway, <laughs> but you know, it's also true in a way of a manner of speaking. You know, I've, I've had people say to me, "There's no such thing as bad publicity." Now, I don't necessarily agree with that on every level, but to some extent, that's true. The only thing is, you got to, you know, you, you hope that people will be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. They'll be able to to say, you know, well, this is bogus and this isn't. I'll give you an example. I'm not going to name any names, but I had a guest on a show recently because I, I do a show uh, called Unraveling the Secrets, mm-hmm. and it's on excuse me, it's on UnravelingTheSecrets.com. And this guest, very interesting person, and, and I guess sincere in, in her beliefs and stuff, but you know, she can supposedly do amazing things. She can look in your body and see your illnesses. She can, you know, look in there and you know tell you what's wrong with your gallbladder. And then go beyond that. She traces it to an emotional event in your life. Oh boy! It's not. It's not. It's not that you that you shouldn't have drank the paint thinner. 
It's that, you know, that you have some sort of anxiety or hang up about something that happened to you or somebody in your life. So, you know, I wanted to give her every benefit of the doubt. You know, I asked her about her medical training. She had none. Uh, I asked her about, you know, her, uh, does she believe in herbs, herbal healing? No, no, doesn't, doesn't believe in that. But she can look in your body and tell you that emotionally where you are, move her hands around and readjust your energy and all this kind of stuff. But then, but then later in the conversation, well, she doesn't believe in channeling. She doesn't believe, well, of course, I don't, I think channeling is, is bogus myself. I think that, you know, if you are channeling something, you, it's kind of like the ghost center thing, you don't know who or what you're talking to. You have right. no way of knowing, or if it's telling you the truth, okay? Or if it's really happening like you think it is. But, you know, she doesn't believe in this and she doesn't believe in that, but she can, you know, she can tell you, she can look at your, your prostate and tell you why it's swollen and then narrow it down to how you resented your dog in the third grade. You know, to me, it's like, at some point, people have to say, I'm looking at this so-called paranormal news. To me, this is bogus. This is not the same as the as the person who's sitting over here on the other side of the, the equation trying to take a critical look at all this stuff and say, this makes sense based on this and based on that. And, you know, there are parallels here. In other words, we have to be selective about what we believe. And I think that some people are overly selective, and I'm talking about like people that call themselves critics, but all they are are debunkers because that's what they really are. Right. Um, and then there are those who have absolutely no filter for being selective. They believe everything. Yeah, they're know? so open-minded, their uh, their brain fell out. Yeah, exactly. Sort of extrapolate more on the, the the density aspect of this because it's not just light density; it's this heavier density, and that kind of is what ties into the the uh, the CCCC book where you, you right. suggest that maybe you know some of these entities have a, you know the more the more physical ones have a have a stronger density because they come from underground. Yeah, exactly. And there's 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 evidence to support this. Um, you know, there, there are many encounters where. Various types of anomalous beings have been have been fired upon. They've been struck with shovels, pickaxes, uh, things of this nature, and the logical effect you would expect is not there. <laughs> you know, they act more as if they're they're being inconvenienced than they're being than the, that they're being injured. Um, you know, you, you have uh, you know stories of people unloading you know bullets into hairy humanoids who kind of get angry and then they walk away. Right, <laughs> and they shouldn't be walking away. Um, yeah, it's like yeah, it's like an it's like an it's like an annoyance to them. Yeah, exactly. And, and you have the same type type of thing with you know some of these uh, everything from you know the original El Chupacabras in in Puerto Rico, you know who people would strike him with. Uh, one guy went out and, and found one of these things killing his chickens, and he took a shovel and smacked him with a shovel, and he said it was like hitting a brick wall or hitting a piece of metal. It was so hard. And, I mean, the thing grudgingly left, but, you know, he should have laid it out. And when you start looking at, at the evidence that surrounds this stuff, as you know from reading the book, you know, the evidence indicates that often there are areas that, where, areas where these types of beings are seen are very uh, close to quick access to underground regions, hmm. whether it's a mine, a tunnel, uh, a sewer system, a cave system. But almost always, there's there's some sort of uh, um, connection there, and you know th- this could explain how at least some of these beings disappear so quickly because they they aren't really from here anyway. They come up, they do what they got to do here in the land of plenty, and then they just go back to where they came from. 
Well, it's it's. I'm interested in knowing how you sort of, uh, 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 for lack of a better term, adopted uh, the under underworld, uh, you know, uh, theory, if you will, because it's it's not exactly. It, it's sort of it's sort of on the peripheral of all this. Do you know what I mean? Right. It, it makes a lot of yeah. sense, but you it don't see a lot of people championing it. Well, you know, you look at it like this. Um, I'm going to go take a couple of routes here, so so bear with me. For Fire me. away, buddy. No worries. Okay. Okay. Um, first of all, you have every ancient tradition on our planet has a tradition of an underworld. Uh-huh. In ancient times, most of these ancient traditions lived in fear of the things that lived underground. Whatever you want to call them, whoever they are, various groups, they they had they were feared. And many times they were offered sacrifices. Um, you know, usually something to do with, something to do with with blood and flesh, and um, most often like the uh, uh, the dark meats, the organs, the organs of the body, like the liver and, and the kidneys and the heart and things like this. Um, this is this is something that's, that was worldwide. And as our species kind of grew out of that, we, we kind of and you know, look, monotheism had a lot to do with this. You know, we moved away from that. And we left those things in the dark. But if you look at what goes on, you'll see that many times with these types of encounters, these anomalous beings seem to be after the exact same sorts of sacrificial um, materials. Like when they hit the livestock, they take the blood, the, the liver, the kidneys, the eyes, right. and the tongue, things like that. They don't take, you know, the whole animal or, 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 or a haunch of meat. You know, they, they take the, the same sacrificial meats that used to be given to the anomalous beings. Um, at the same time, when you, when you look at, for instance, many uh, UFO encounters, this is a good example. Uh, UFOs, in this, you know, this is this has been verified. You know, they mostly are seen. If you if you look at the at, at, at the preponderance of, of, of uh, eyewitness accounts, even the eyewitness accounts from military personnel, they're usually seen over or around bodies of water. The majority of the time, or they've been seen to come and go right into the sides of mountains, uh, down into volcanoes, right into the ground, and then, you know, there's no explanation for it. Right, right. Shouldn't physically uh, be able to do that. Shouldn't physically be able to do that, unless, of course, they can alter their density. Um, exactly. And, you know, Ivan T. Sanderson wrote a book back in uh, 69, I think, called Invisible Resonance. And his whole postulation was that that some of this stuff, a lot of these things are coming from under the ocean, that we share our planet with a civilization that's sub-oceanic. And that makes a lot of sense, but see, I didn't read that book until after I'd read written mine. And I have some of the sub-oceanic stuff in there, too, but I believe that we have an aspect of our biosphere here that we just don't see that often because it's inhospitable to us. And for whatever reasons, some of these people have, and I'll call them people, some of these people, whoever, whatever they are, they have reached just a level of sophistication technologically. Long a long time ago, they had their their uh, singularity event. Okay, so they've reached a, a point of development where they can live wherever they want to, and they have elected for reasons of safety, for reasons of being removed from cosmic radiation, for reasons of seeing uh, the surface world as a resource that they can uh, come and take whatever they want to, whenever they want to. They have removed themselves from the surface. Because it's more secure, they're less likely to be seen and interfered with if they're up to something that you know they, they know that we won't like. 
Um, if they're using this, if they're using us as a resource. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. So they, they, they've taken the logical step of, of basically treating us like almost like we treat animals on a preserve. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've often, I've, I've heard it supposed in, in places that maybe to, I, I wouldn't say retreat, but to, to, uh, to live in, within the interior of a planet might actually be the more intelligent sort of, uh, tact to take. That's why we don't, you know, we don't yeah. see any cities or anything like on Mars or any of these other planets or anything, because maybe if there's are, if there are, you know, intelligent entities, maybe they figured out that the smartest place to be is, you know, under the surface. So if you get hit well, by an asteroid or, right, you know, exactly. weather and that kind of stuff, you're not really affected by it. Well, you know, we know that asteroids hit this planet. I mean, we, we know it's a fact, and we know that something that was so so catastrophic that it basically, it, it didn't happen immediately, but it led to the demise of, you know, a whole, an entire ecosystem that existed here, it, not once, but at least a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there were civilizations, okay, look, the age, of the so-called age of the dinosaurs, it lasted for hundreds of millions of years. Human beings have been around for about a million years. Modern, or humans as we think of humans, even, even pre-modern humans. So, let us suppose, as a thought exercise, that you know, during the age of the dinosaurs, and many dinosaurs, by the way, were warm-blooded. They were endothermic, just like birds are. Mm-hmm. So let us suppose that there was a civilization that had developed over hundreds of millions of years, and then the, a, cat- a cataclysm strikes the planet. The survivors may very well decide, we don't want to go through that again. Let's go underground. Right. And they've been there ever since. The same sort of thing we see, first it's on Mars, you know, obviously Mars at one point had an atmosphere and an ecosystem, and they're now dancing around the idea, well, maybe it can support life even now, you know. They know something they don't want the rest of us to know. But, but you know, obviously there was running water, there were oceans, all this type of stuff. But something happened that was so devastating to the surface, it it literally sucked the atmosphere off, at least for a while. And bombarded the surface with, you know, with, with fragments of huge rock fragments. Something cataclysmic occurred, you know, possibly the explosion of another planet between Mars and Jupiter, which left the asteroid belt. But like you said, if there were a civilization there, and if there were any survivors, they would have two options, and, they, and both of which they might elect, you know, to, to follow. One of which is to come here in antiquity, and the other which is to go underground. To survive. Right. To me, it's logical that what we're dealing with is not from Alpha Centauri. I'm talking about UFOs specifically right mm-hmm. now. You know, it's not from Zeta Reticuli. You know, if, if you were, hypothetically, let, let us say that, that you were a, a, not a nice person and you decided you were going to take advantage of some, 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 uh, na- some neighbors that you had. They were much more primitive than you were. And you actually live right on the other side of the mountain. But these neighbors look at you as some kind of god. So you're going over there, and you're coming in the middle of the night taking their maidens for experiments or impregnation or whatever it is you're doing, and which we would call rape, by the way. Obviously, yeah. And, and kidnapping. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're coming over there, and you've got these people hoodwinked to thinking you're some kind of god. You're doing something special for them. And they say, well, where are you from? Are you going to say, oh, I'm from the other side of the mountain? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to say, oh, look, up there, you see that star up there? That's where we're from. Yeah, and don't because, bother even yeah. trying to get there to get us. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's it's the same old story. I mean, and what what amazes me, it's the same thing with channeling or, or any of this, you know, this ghost hunting stuff or whatever. People, they claim they want to find out what the truth is, 
but then they're completely willing to believe whatever they're told by whatever anomalous phenomena they're dealing with. It tells them something. They say, oh, okay, that must be true because it said so. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. And, um, yeah. you know, just to speak to the, to the you know, you, you make the point continuously in the book, and I think you made it uh, earlier here in the conversation. I know you did. Um, and that's just that whatever these things are, even beyond where they come from, they, they definitely, I think, see the human race as, as the way we see animals almost. I think yeah. that's almost, a, I mean, having looked at this for so long, I think that's almost, a, I wouldn't go so far as to say a given, but damn near close. Well, you know, it, it, it's almost like there's, there's a level of contempt involved here. Um, it, it, but it, it, it's a contempt based on, on a resentment because they need what we have. Right. In other words, there's something we have genetically, there's something we have spiritually, there's something we have on several levels that they do not have, but they desperately want. Maybe every now and then they need an influx of genetic material. And they look at us as inferior, but they're actually the ones who are inferior. That's, you, yeah, you know I, can say? See, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, they're the ones that, that are, uh, yeah, they have the weakness are, and they need us. Right, exactly. But they don't want us to know that. You know, that it's, it's very, very important to them that we not figure that out. The, th- the thing about, about this whole phenomenon, I'll give you a perfect example. If these beings were from the other side of the galaxy, mm-hmm. or even another star system, and they have discovered how to very quickly travel between interstellar distances, between star systems, right, safely and quickly, and they find themselves at a genetic bottleneck or with a major genetic problem, why would they come all the way to this little planet out on the edge of the galaxy to get what they need? Because if they're that advanced, they would already be able to um, design their own DNA, correct uh, genetic problems, um, rebuild themselves completely, correct any problem that they've got. Uh, look, we're, we're even now we're we're making huge advances ourselves, you know, in, in genetics. Right, right. So imagine what they supposedly would, would be able to do if they were a million years ahead of us or even 500 years ahead of us, okay? So, you know, this whole idea of, well, we've had to come all this way because, you know, the Earth people have what we need. No, uh, whoever, whatever these things are, they're from here too because genetically they would have to be related to us in order to um, interbreed or, or use our genetic material. Secondary to that, if, if they need what we have, genetically, why wouldn't they just ask us outright unless they were scared we would put an end to it? Or we would want something in return. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It makes you wonder what they're what they're well, you know, you say they, they look at us with contempt and, you know, right. not, not to empathize with their point of view, but if you if you could it sounds kinda of like, you know, let's say you the house you grew up in you gotta move away. And isn't there always yeah. sort of a little bit of a odd feeling about the family that moves into your old home? <laughs> You know, maybe it's something like that. They're, they're sort of like, listen, we were here first. Right. You know. Well, I'll and, give you an example. And so that's their kind of perspective on things. That's like, you like, like they own thing. this planet. We're just, you know, we're just that's hanging around thing. right now at the yeah. time. But they're, in their mind, it's kind of like the farmer owns the farm. The cows don't. Well, it could be that they see it that way, but that's not the way it is. It hmm. could be that they had a lease and their lease is up, which many ancient traditions seem to indicate. Hmm. Many, yeah. Major religions seem to indicate that, but they don't want to go. You know, they don't want to. You know, say, okay, we're done. They're like, squat, they're like squatters. Yeah, like squatters, and they're very sneaky in, about the way they do things. You know, and it may, always amazes me all these people with all this benevolent 
uh, Space Brother bull crap, you know. Benevolent Space Brothers, they're here to help us. They, oh, we should join the galactic community. I'm, okay, you're going to join something. You don't even know what it is. You don't really know if there is a galactic community, even if they say that's where they're from. Mm. You see what I'm saying here? No, absolutely, yeah. And, 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 when, and when these things, you know, you read all the literature, all of it, you know, pretty much, you know, these beings come. Okay, supposedly they're telepathic. Supposedly they're advanced. Okay, if they're so advanced and they're telepathic, why don't they just come in the, in, and just, like, leave you asleep and, you know, use like a, a, a damping EM field or something and just make sure you stay asleep and take what they need and leave and you never know they're there. Now, they don't do that. They come in and they make a big drama. They terrify people. They seem to relish, you know, they put you through painful, supposedly painful processes um, that are basically almost like torture sessions. Um, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of S&M involved here with what they're doing, or at least sadism. Yeah. You know, they, and, and they seem to really get off on it. They, they, they enjoy it because they, they look at you and they supposedly see what's in your mind and, and they know what you're doing and they tell you, don't be frightened. We're, you know, okay, you don't want me frightened. First of all, don't do this. Second of all, leave me asleep when you do it. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's, there's something here that's, that's inherently akin to rape and terrorism, I guess, for lack of a better term. So what um, would you ascribe yeah. that ill will to? Why do you think, you know, why can't they do Why, you know, in the, in the immortal words of Rodney King, why can't we all just get along? Why can't they, are they actually thought, afraid of us, you think, or, or you know? I, I think there's a little bit of all. I, mean, I thought you were going to say Rodney Dangerfield, you know. Respect. <laughs> well, it's clear we don't, we don't get no respect from these uh, entities, no, no matter what. We don't get no respect. No respect at all. No, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, the, the thing about this is that that I think that this is based on resentment, and they resent that they need what we have. Mm. They don't have any other choice. You know, personally, I think that if it weren't for the fact that they need what we have, various things that we that we do for them, um, you know, even on a spiritual level, things that they purloin from human beings, um, if they didn't have that need then we might not still be here. Yeah. That certainly seems the case. I mean, that that goes back to the why don't they just wipe us out theory on aliens. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, then, you know, you've traced this back so far, though. I guess the question is they haven't been able to figure out how to fix their need to the point where now we, we're talking like thousands of years here that they've been looking for the genetic material. They keep needing the genetic material here for thousands and thousands of years. And, and, and that just indicates that they're not as advanced as, say, an interstellar society would be. Right, because they're, they're not figuring this, society. you know, they should be able to figure it out by now. I yeah, mean, exactly. Um, so it doesn't make any you know, sense. And, and this ties back to, to legends that, you know, exist all around the world, again, where, you know, as you probably saw in CCCC about... You know, ancient civilizations of beings, whether they're called the Dragon Kings or the Naga or the Nephilim or whatever you want to call these, these, these beings, they were part human and part something else. And one of the drawbacks to that is that once they make that, once that hybridization occurred, if they don't get a regular influx of, a regular influx of human genetic material, then they become less and less human themselves in appearance. Huh. They degenerate. And so, you know, they have to periodically have a fresh influx of, you know, it's just like any genetic bottleneck. I mean, you have a group of people that are highly isolated and they start inbreeding 
and they inbreed for generations and generations, all kinds of weird stuff starts happening to them. Yeah, you know, exactly. They, they, get, they get flippers and everything else. So, you know, um, when when uh, these beings, who may not even be, they may be related to us, but they're not us, if they've hybridized with us, they're going to find themselves needing eugenic material more and more frequently as time goes by. We're not even really going to get, I have a feeling, just based on the where we're at so far in the conversation, we're not really going to get into the hardcore specifics of the book because we're really exploring some of these big themes. And I'm loving it, so don't, right. <laughs> so don't take it the wrong way. So I'm going to keep going in that vein. But you do, you do, uh, you, you pick out my favorite guy here in the world of the paranormal, that's Bigfoot, and you suggest that, that, that he's not paranormal, he's not natural in the, in the sense that he's, a creature like a bear or a deer that's just living somewhere we can't find him, but that that he is part of the under underworld uh, ecosystem. Right, and you, you know there are several things that could be going on. And, and again, this goes for anything we've been talking about. I mean, you could have things that are superficially the same in terms of the way they appear, where they present themselves, but you could be dealing with five different things. Right. Okay, so you could be dealing with John Keel's. Uh, um, what did he call them, big hairy monsters, BHMs? You could be dealing with those types of beings, which are, you know, wholly paranormal, or as I would say, they're quantum in nature. Okay, they're, they're, they're basically total forms, and they may even be able to manipulate reality based on, you know, consciously manipulate reality based on our expectations. Right, they can change the way have, they appear based on the witness. Right, and then you may have a whole other thing that's going on that is completely a natural creature, or is it, by natural, I just mean it's physically real. Right, right. It's like an actual it's, animal or whatever. Right. Or, or, you know, something that's part of this ecosystem, part of another ecosystem that we don't see very much. Hmm. And there seems to be, you know, there's so many stories about Bigfoot living in caves. Coming from tunnels, coming out of mines, going into mines, going into, you know, even train tunnels, all this kind of stuff. Um, a lot of sunken areas like sumps. I don't know if people, your listeners know what a sump is. But like a sinkhole area uh, that's been there for a long, long time, and it's got caves connected to it. You know, there are lots of Bigfoot encounters that, that take place around these, these areas. At the same time, though, you know, you have this recent uproar, and I don't know what you think about this, but the supposed genetic material that they found with the Bigfoot being part human. Have you heard about that? I've heard about it. I, I try not to think about it. <laughs> well, you know, let us assume that that, that is accurate, that they have actually found something. First of all, it's going to run into the same territorial resentment and opposition that I talked about earlier. Right. Among those who, if that doesn't fit their paradigm, that they're pushing for their own self-aggrandizement, because they're not interested in the truth, they're just interested in being right, okay, then they're going to push back real hard against something like that. But if you consider for even a moment that what the woman has found, Dr. Ketchum has found is true, and that there is a Bigfoot, DNA that's, that's legitimate, or several samples, that is part human, that is part unknown primate, and then, she said, novel life forms that we can't even identify. Right. Then, we're, then right here we're talking about hybridization, and at some point that hybridization had to be initiated. Maybe it was initiated in a lab a long, long time ago. But, again, you know, you tie this in with, like, for instance, David Paulides. Uh, research about uh, he, he talks about missing 411 uh-huh. but where he basically dances, he's talking about all the thousands of, of people that have disappeared over the years in and around national parks inexplicably just vanish 
and he sees patterns. Now, he doesn't come out and say it in the book, but his basic premise is that they're being kidnapped for breeding by somebody or something. Right, right. And you so point out in the book the, the, the sheer number of amazing uh, number of disappearances. I think you quote a, a stat there that was uh, from 1998. There was something like uh, 2,200 people go m- missing a day. Yeah, yeah, and that was from 98. Right. Now, right. a lot of those people were found. A lot of them were changing their identity. Some of them are runaways. But even once you factor all that in, this still leaves this huge number of people that just absolutely, in the United States alone, vanish every year. Right. With no trace. Even if, no yeah, even if 10% of the, of the 2,200 that disappear a day yeah. don't come back, you're still, you're still talking about a massive number. Right. And that's 1998 numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, when you start looking at the rest of the planet, the so-called third world, and you know uh, places like uh, you know Eastern Europe and, and other places where people disappear. Yeah, some people are, are, are kidnapped for the sex trade. Some people are kidnapped for you know nefarious purposes and this and that. But the numbers are still so huge that we're talking about what almost looks like a culling of a herd or a harvest of a crop on a regular basis. Right. It, it's very disturbing. But see, again, if these types of this, these numbers were, were occurring. Uh, because of a, a product de- defect, you know, in, in the marketplace, or because of a war, the outcry in the media, the news media, and the outcry, you know, in the everyday life, people's protest would just be deafening. I mean, it would not stand. Right. Okay. But you know, a blind eye is turned to this mm-hmm. all, all the time. Well, now that raises an interesting point, and um, I didn't see really any any discussion of this in. Um in CCCC, but in light of, you know, the advancements of ground-penetrating radar and, uh, you know, all the theories of government uh, dealings with aliens and regardless of where their origins and all that stuff, we're just going to use aliens as a catch-all here. Um, I mean, what do you think of, I guess, what do you think the government knows about this underground ecosystem? I think they know about it. Um, If you go further into the book, I know you haven't finished it yet, you'll see uh, some indications that they do know, but what can they do? You know, first of all, you want to start a war with these whoever these beings are. I don't think so because they live in this on the same planet we do. I mean, we don't want to destroy our planet trying to, to get rid of these termites because that's the way I look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, there's all this talk in the UFO community about how well, they're here to help us. They want to protect us from our nuclear weapons. No, they want to protect themselves because they live here. Right. Okay. And so, you know, it, it's interesting that the first uh, major uh, sighting by, by Kenneth Arnold occurred just very shortly after our first underground nuclear test. Well, I guess the part of this, I have this in the notes, is that you say, you know, well, do you think they really want to go to war with these people? I, I almost think that maybe that's a foregone conclusion. If this is all, if, if this all stacks up the way you think it does, or you well, or the, you know, it seems, you know, we're eventually going to ruin the surface of the earth and have to go underground. We're, we're going to run into them when we get down there, I think. Well, supposedly we've run into them already. You know, there are lots of stories about underground battles with so-called alien bases and things like this, but they're probably not from somewhere else. They're probably from here, and they always have been. Hmm. Um, you know, when you start talking about things like war, well, who's to say that, you know, the very, various theories that people have about, you know, I know, for instance, if you look in the book of Ephesians in the, in the Bible, you know, it talks about the levels of, of demonic um, or, or, you know, evil opposition. And it talks about spiritual wickedness in high places, principalities and powers. Okay, those would be like fallen angels. Okay. But then it says, in the rulers of the spiritual darkness of this world. 
Well, you know, in ancient Hebrew tradition, um, there were a group of fallen angels, and what they call fallen angels. I mean, you know, one man's fallen angel is another person's, you know, advanced being from antiquity, whatever. Exactly. But the thing is, it, it talks about um, how they had hybridized with humans, and as a punishment, their offspring were destroyed in, in a cataclysm, which was you know, later recorded as the Great Flood, and the whole civilization was wiped out. Of course, now we're finding huge ruins on the bottom of all the oceans, including even down around Cuba, you know, uh, where there is something there that was destroyed. But basically, when you look at that ancient tradition, it says that, that the, the beings that did that as their punishment, the Book of Jasher, the Book of Jubilees, all these various apocryphal books, the Books of Enoch, all the versions, they talk about these beings being driven underground. They're, they're sealed underground. They say, this is where you live now. You don't come out here with the rest of us. This is your punishment. Well, you know, who knows what kind of a memory that is of something that might have happened. Now, you take that to the next step, which is where you have people, and look, this is not my belief, okay, but you know, they talk about bloodlines that are ruled by these different beings that are influencing human civilization. Well, you know, you look at, uh, for instance, if you go look in uh, the, the traditions of the Hindus, uh, you'll find that the Nagas and the Asutras and these other subterranean humanoid beings influence who's going to be the king, who's going to be the queen. Um, they intermarry with people. They kidnap people for, for genetic cross-breeding. You know, you go to Northern Europe, you find the same things. You know, the whole fraud princess thing is, is or fraud prince thing, actually, is is the whole idea of this, this non-human being who lives underground in a well, and, you know, he coerces this girl. At first, he's unattracted to her, but eventually, when she comes around to his way of thinking, you know, then she gets all these benefits because, you know, she becomes his bride. Right. And you have the same thing everywhere. It's in Japan. It's in China. It's in Native American folklore. It's everywhere. And and so, you know, you have to wonder if there are, you know, there are many, well, I know that there are cults that claim to communicate with non-human beings that live inside the earth and things of this nature. And inevitably, of course, they're very secretive, and they tend to do things which would not make them popular in society. Okay? I just put it that way. So, you know, it could be that these things go on. And so, you know, how, how are you going to go to war against them when they have basically could well have infiltrated our society at various levels and to an unknown extent that we don't even know how much we've been... Uh, uh, Compromised over right. time. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, you know, you you look at first as Napoleon. You know, Napoleon claimed that he met with someone called the Red Man, um, and this little guy was seen. He would appear in Napoleon's chambers, and the guards would not be able to stop him, and they would confer, and then he would disappear. And then again later with Adolf Hitler, the same thing happened, except they had a guy that they called the Tibetan because of the way he looked. And this guy would appear in, the, in uh, Hitler's chambers and have long talks with him, and then he would disappear. And absolutely freaked out, you know, the guards and stuff, because they had no explanation for how this was going on. And, um, you know, at one point Hitler said, I have seen the new man. He is intrepid and cruel. I was afraid of him. So was he talking about this, this mysterious being that he was, you know, conferring with periodically, or was he had he been told something by this being? You know, obviously he was being manipulated. 
Right. Um, uh, Many leaders down through history have had these types of encounters where they're manipulated. You know, uh, a, a perfect example is Alexander the Great. Yeah. Alexander the Great was told he was the son of a god, uh, whether he was or not. What, we, what they call, like I said, they live on the other side of the mountain, so they're going to tell you they're gods. Exactly, yeah. I guess I'm trying to look at the whole, pull the camera back a little bit here, on the whole ecosystem of the universe. Now, do you think then that that out of hand there's no... Because I feel, because I've always sort of been on the belief that that there had to be aliens coming here, regardless of. We, I don't. I don't think all UFOs are aliens, but I think there has to be some, just well, you know, like, passing like, through. I mean, do you think that's a possibility, or 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 because? Well, it's, I mean, it's no you know. different than yeah, it's no different than what we talked about earlier with the hairy humanoids. I mean, there could be five different explanations for these things, right? But and they just superficially appear to be the same thing. But I think that you know. In my opinion, as near as the human mind can grasp, the universe is infinite. Logic would tell us that in an infinite universe, anything you can imagine at some point somewhere is going to come to pass. Mm -hmm. Just because of the laws of probability. Okay. You add to that the probability of, it, of habitable planets and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, you're going to have a universe that's teeming with life, just as you have a puddle of water that's teeming with life. Right. Does that mean that they get here? No. It doesn't. Um, you know, and if they do, why would they come here? If, if the universe is teeming with life, what do we have that they can't find somewhere else much nearer to home? Who knows? You know you see what I'm saying? Yeah. But, Could be but, something as but, simple as cats, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows what who knows what they need? Yeah, um, wipes. What's that? Cigarettes. Candy wipes or cigarettes. <laughs> exactly. Jack Daniels. I travel across the universe for that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm just trying to sort of wrap my mind around the the overarching ecosystem of this. I think the I think the end uh, takeaway from a lot of this, though, is that it's something that was obvious, I guess, in general. But your book sort of drives it home that we're really not. It's, it goes to the Copernicus thing. Not only does the sun not revolve around the earth, but the human race is not the, the be-all and end-all of all this. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, if you think about it, if you look at it logically, you know, it, it really does go back to what William of Ockham said, what we now call Ockham's Razor. And, you know, the funny thing about Ockham's Razor is people, you know, you'll hear Carl, Carl Sagan quote, you know, William's, William of Ockham, you know, and people nowadays, like skeptical inquirer people, William of Occam's Razor, they don't have a clue about what Occam's Razor because they, they, they misrepresent what it says all the time. And what they don't tell you is William of Occam was a theologian. And he was trying to answer a theological argument about the existence of God when he came up with his so-called, uh, postulate, you know, about, <laughs> you know, but that doesn't come out now because it's people who do not want to, you know, suppose the existence of God. Who <laughs> use Occam's razor to try to make their point, but the point is, I think it is a very logical way of looking at things, and it is that, you know, no matter how absurd it might seem at first, when you're trying to find an explanation, after you've exhausted most things, you will find that the simplest explanation is usually the correct answer. Right. Even you know, it's just like years ago they 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 had all these ideas about what caused disease, you know, and you know. And they had all these crazy ideas, and then somebody said, well, you know, maybe it's like these little tiny animals that we can't see. Oh, no, that's ridiculous. It can't, you know, but what did it end up being? The most logical, obvious answer. Or 
but the idea of spontaneous generation where they decided that, you know, that, that raw meat would spontaneously turn into maggots and flies, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I've yeah. yeah. used that example just in general with the paranormal where it's like, you know, they, anyone who dismisses, for example, uh, your work here on the underground ecosystem, anyone who dismisses out of hand the possibility, you know, well, there was already this whole ecosystem we didn't know about, which was germs. So it's entirely possible there could be a whole underground sure. ecosystem. Well, not just that, but, I mean, I've been kind of sort of watching for a few years now. Every year they discover new underground life forms, and I'm not just talking about germs. You know, a new hairy uh, crawdad critter or something that lives, you know, underneath Britain and new animals here and there that live in caves. And these are larger animals, larger organisms. And they, they, they get like a brief mention in some little quirky news feed and then they're gone. You know, you don't hear about it again. But, you know, large animals are discovered all the time anyway. Um, they just don't tell you that because they're so concerned with pushing the idea that everything's dying that they don't want to tell you that new ant life forms are being found all the time. Um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, and that's another thing we have to look at. Are there, there are always agendas you know, in news feeds, in, in news in general, anything that we're told, there's an agenda. There's always a, a correct way to think, and there's an incorrect way to think, and you dare not step outside of the correct way. You know, I, as you can tell, I'm majorly against political correctness in general. So, you know, I think that anything that, that, that stifles uh, individual thought is dangerous. And, uh, yeah, so, but yeah, new life forms are found all the time, and many of them are subterranean every year, as a matter of fact. When the Sox and Celtics and Patriots or Bruins or champions again, to the chagrin of New York and Chicago fans, the crowds will gather and watch a parade go down Boylston Street. And this time next year, on the third Monday in April, the world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder for the 118th Boston Marathon. Bet on it. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. This is our fucking city. And nobody gonna dictate our freedom. Stay strong. Thank you. Well, it's interesting. It's a really, uh, like I said, uh, you don't really hear, there's plenty of people, I guess you could say, well, not plenty, but there's a, there's a handful of people who do talk about the possibility of this idea of sort of an internal civilization. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is not a hollow earth theory. I'm not a hollow earther. That's what I was going to ask you next. Now, you're more in yeah. favor of sort of this honeycomb idea, right? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's obvious that you know, the, the earth itself is full of uh, fissures and cracks and, and gaps, and as a matter of fact, if you look at the data, you'll see there's a there's a there's a layer between the crust mantle boundary. It's called the Moho for short, mm-hmm. or Rovšić or something like this. It's it's a um, I believe it's a Serbian or Bosnian term, a name name for the guy who discovered it. Um, but the Moho layer is a world is worldwide. It's everywhere, and it's a, it's a it's an anomalous region that can be found by uh, um, seismic readings, and it appears to be a cavern world that exists between the crust and the mantle. It's highly pressurized, but when they look at it, they can map uh, hills and valleys and mountains and everything. And we don't know what's there. But if you go around the world, for instance, if you go to Lechuguilla in New Mexico, which is a big cave system, or Carlsbad 
or a blowing cave, as it's called, you know, in Arkansas. Other big cave systems all over the world, there's a steady, strong air current that blows out of these caves. Where's the air coming from? What region is generating a powerful air current that's so strong it can blow out from the interior of the Earth? Obviously, there's something huge there that does this. (laughs) What do you think it is? I, I found myself puzzled by it because I obviously had read that part of the book where, you know. I, well, you know, you know, if you look at ancient accounts, you'll find it. It's mentioned. You know, it's mentioned uh, all over the world about this subterranean realm that that exists that is an ecosystem of the, in and of itself. But periodically, you know, those who live there have to come out and, and take what they need because it's not completely self-sufficient. Um, obviously, it's away from the, the main source of the, of the food chain, which is the sun, you know. And so it's going to have to come out and, and take obtain resources and then, you know, take them back. But even take it even further, you'll find, for instance, in uh, the ancient account, for instance, the ancient Hebrew account, the cataclysm of the so-called flood, it's talking about an event where it sounds like something passed close to the planet that was large and it had a huge gravitational effect on the planet. Because it talks about something called the firmament, which was above the planet. It was like a shell of water. So there, were, there was there was land, and then there was the sky, and above the sky was the firmament. Well, people now think that means where the stars are, but that's not what it meant. It said there were waters. There were waters in the firmament, waters above the earth. Well, that's talking about a shell of water that used to be suspended above the earth, kind of like the liquidous atmosphere that's above some of the larger you know, gas planets. Okay, yeah. And and it says that what happened when this this event occurred, it says the windows of heaven were opened and this water started to fall. Simultaneously to this, there was some sort of huge gravitational pull. The same thing that disturbed, upset the balance of that layer of the atmosphere, something else happened which disrupted the crust of the earth. It says, for the windows of heaven were opened and the fountains of the deep burst forth. And basically water burst from inside the earth due to gravitational and tidal forces. So my theory is that the Moho may be what's left of what was once an internal region of water. And you look at the water in our oceans now, which are covering where they used to not cover. I mean, there's way too much water there that was not there previously. Even during, you know, like even the dinosaur age, the oceans were not that large. Right. Um, yeah, and you look now, you'll find, like I said, ruins, whether you're talking about the Yonaguni ruins off Japan or these new pyramids that have been mapped off the coast of Cuba, which are really deep, okay, in the Gulf of Mexico. All, but all over the place you're finding these anomalies now that we can finally have the technology where we're starting to find these things. So we, water came from somewhere. So if it came from an outer shell above the earth and from waters inside the earth, that would explain where it came from. That would greatly explain the, soli- the, the salinity of the oceans. And it would also explain this whole idea of, of this, this region that the crust mantle boundary that now reads as, as hollow, whereas before it may not have been that hollow. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, ancient people were not stupid. They had their own way of explaining things. We just had to figure out what they were trying to tell us. Mm. Um, you know, you know um, the thing about this is that when you look at all these ancient accounts from all over the world, you'll find the same story over and over again. Right. You know, it's like 12 points that seem to trend yeah. that connect all these stories. Yeah. And so, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And, and Occam's razor would indicate that, you know, no matter how weird and absurd it might seem to our modern way of thinking, 
many times whatever is the most logical, simplest answer is going to be the true answer to the problem. Right. And one would ask, in light of all this, people must have discovered these some of these underground you know, locations where there's there's entities or what whatnot. And you do list a number of type instances in the book, right? Right, exactly. And you know, and even after the the third edition I've I've learned of new, you know, things that supposedly happened. I have a friend named Walter Bosley. If you have Walter on the program Oh absolutely, yeah. Walter's a good friend. Yeah, 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 he's a good good friend of mine. And and Walter will tell you about an encounter that either his grandfather or his great grand no, either his father or his grandfather, I believe it was his grandfather, but it may have been his father, had um when they were on a, a uh, uh, something to do with, they had a, when well, they had a firefight in the Southwest against humanoids, humans is you know who they call them humans I guess, who lived underground, and they accidentally encountered these people and they had a disagreement and it resulted in a fight, um, and he basically told Walter that he was in on the whole in the whole Roswell thing, and they were not aliens and they were not you know, uh, Japanese, and they were not this and that, but that they were people, but they were people who live on this planet with us that we never see. Hmm. Um, his dad was an intel of some sort, and he told, you know, and Walter is an ex-intel agent, and, and he told him, you know, that, that that these beings share the planet with us, and they just, like, they don't want us to know they're here. Um, so, you know, there are accounts of of official encounters with these these beings, and I think what we have to do is we have to be very careful because there's a lot of, and from any source, there's a lot of disinformation. And misinformation involved with all this stuff, especially if it relates to UFOs. But when you're talking about the beings themselves, they seem to do nothing but spew misinformation and misdirection. And then, then you go higher up to other levels, government and other, other outlets, and you'll find more misinformation. Or at least it seems to be that the case. Right, it, it, right. Yeah. It's in somebody's interest for us to think they're from Alpha Centauri rather than from here. And it seems like the government, you know, seals off a lot of these types of uh, potential gateways into this thing. Because you would think that if they have to, if the entities inside have to come out to get stuff, then it can't be that far down to find them. You know what I mean? Well, Although they, you know, there may be people that go and look, and next thing you know, they never turn up again. So Right. Well, you know, so. I, I, looked at, I look at Richard Shaver's stuff quite a bit in the book. Um, and on top of that, you know... You think about, like, for instance, Whitley, Strieber. Okay, is it Strieber or Strieber? I can't remember. Uh, Strieber, I believe, yeah. Strieber, yeah. Whitley, you know, in one of his books, he talks about this encounter that someone had at a bookstore. One of his uh, um, experiencers went into a bookstore and found these two really small, strange people. They were all bundled up, almost covered, but you couldn't see what they looked like, a man and a woman, or male and female garb. And they were, like, four feet tall, and, and they were looking at his book, Communion, and they were flipping through it, and one of them was saying, to the other, oh, no, he's wrong about this. Look, he got this wrong. Oh, he, look, he, you know, and they were talking like they were in the know, and he didn't know anything. Yeah. And how they'd been fooled, basically. And the person looked at them and got a good look at them and said they were not human, as we would call human. They were like little people with huge eyes and, you know, and again, there you have the whole huge eye thing. Look, you know, if you dwell in darkness most of the time or in dim light, and you've adapted to live in that environment, you're going to have great big eyes. Um, if you're not completely blind like a cavefish, if you're somebody that uses your eyes and occasionally you come out, say, at night, you're going to have big eyes. You're going to have the eyes of a nocturnal thing. 
if you're a spacefarer who spends decades, you know, crossing vast distances or even years, and you've got a civilization that's intergalactic, you're not going to have huge eyes because that would be a detriment because that would allow more cosmic radiation and other forms of radiation to reach your, your optic center and damage you. Okay. Yeah, I never thought of it that so way. So logically, if you have huge eyes, you're a nocturnal and or subterranean being. And when you start looking at the accounts of these beings, supposedly when the so-called black eyes are actually lenses, like giant contact lenses, yeah. well, then it makes sense because these are beings that dwell in darkness. When they come out here, they put these lens covers on to protect their, their sensitive eyesight. Well, like thinking about all this, Mike, leaves me... You know, when I hang up the phone today, I'm wondering if I'm just going to be like, well, we're shit out of luck. I mean, what is, you know, I hate to get into the end game here, but what, I mean, what is there anything, is there anything we can possibly do about the fact that we're cattle to this race of people that live inside the earth? I, I, I think it's like this. I think that most of the time they leave us alone. Most of the time. I think that we leave them alone almost all the time because we don't have any other choice. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, there's this thing going on where it's 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 one-sided, and it shouldn't be. I also think that uh, uh, we shouldn't sweat it because once you're aware that these things may be real, then you can take steps to kind of to make sure that that, that that you'll be able to take care of yourself. Put it that way. Right. And if, if if you read, you know, uh, the new treatise, the problem of density in regard to non-human encounters. Yes. I touched on some of that a little bit, but in CCCC, there's even more. Uh, information about that, more ideas, uh, more in, indications. And as you go forward, you're going to see where it kind of goes. And it does deal with religious topics because, you know, I, I think the ancients were telling us things that we, because, not because they wanted to control us with religion and not because they wanted to manipulate the future generations, but because they had figured some things out and they wanted us to know that there were things we could do to protect ourselves and there were things we could do to make sure that, uh, that we remain the dominant species. Right, right. We introduced some of that stuff uh, in the parts of the book that I've read so far, with the, the use of iron and, and invocation of religion. And, and one, yeah. one quote that you have here in the book was that uh, you say, the more one learns about the ancient knowledge and traditions, the more it is seen that a spiritual yet physical and galactic war is behind all the myths, legends, religions, and traditions of our world. That's a pretty... Right. Uh, Right. That's a pretty bold statement. I mean, what is it, what is this war between good and evil well, on a greater well, sense, I guess? Well, well, sure, because, you know, you have, whether you're talking about the Hindu Puranas and, and so forth, or if you're talking about Hebrew, Judeo-Christian viewpoint, uh, Muslim viewpoint, even to some extent the Buddhist viewpoint, there's an indication that there's a war between good and evil that originates in high places. And... Well, you think of high places as being, you know, outer space, or do you think of it as being another dimension, a spiritual dimension? There's something that happened a long time ago, and it's not over yet. And the conflict is still going on, and we see it reflected around us all the time. In everything that we do, you know, in our lives, there are indications that there's more going on than meets the eye. And I think that, uh, you know, when you go out and you look at things, for instance, like, uh, you know, you have this whole idea of whether there was war in heaven, you know, and... But then you, if you look further into the Judeo-Christian point of view, you see that, well, that's not over. It's still going on. It's going on, supposedly, until the end of things when Christ returns. If you look at, for instance, the uh, the belief system of, uh, of the Hindus, you'll see that there's war among the planets 
but that they all have a vested interest in the Earth, and many of them originated here before they went to the moon and the planets and stuff. So you find this 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 theme everywhere, but you also find things like uh, you find the moon of Saturn called Iaptus. Have you heard of this? Uh, I've heard of the moon. Yeah, I've heard of the moon of Saturn. Yeah. 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 This this is I believe it's Saturn. Maybe not, but it's Iapetus. And uh-huh. Iapetus, if you find photos of Iapetus, it's 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 made from what look like huge welded pieces of of octagonal metal, almost like a a, a, a geodesic dome, like the Death and Star. Like, and right around the middle of and there's there's, there's satellite photos. I mean, go, you can go look it up since we get off the phone. Um, we, well, we should, you know, probes out there that have looked at this thing. There's a ridge that runs around the center, what would be the equator of this object. Right, I'm looking I'm at it right now, object. yeah. Yeah, and this this uh, this thing that runs around the center looks like two lips at the top of the, two bowls that have been put together. Right, like a seam. Yeah, like a seam, and it's like a mile high, and it runs the entire circumference of this so-called moon. And you look at this thing, and it's rusted. It looks like it's oxidized. You're looking at a Death Star here. It's ancient, it's old, it's dead, but whatever it is, it was artificially created. There's no way in hell, okay, that that thing evolved or came about from spinning matter or whatever. You're looking at two geodesic domes that have been fitted together to make an artificial moon. For what purpose? Well, there was war in heaven. Mm, so you're saying heaven being space. It could be space. It could also be on on various levels. It could be on the quantum level. It, you know, we're talking about something that, you know, we're so, we think of ourselves as being so advanced. Hmm. But our understanding can be so limited that we really are just barely getting the, the big picture. Right. We don't so even have the words to, to use almost. Right. Yeah. Uh, we're uh, deep uh, down uh, the uh, rabbit hole here in this case. <laughs> right. <laughs> and exactly. I'm liking it. Uh, what this actually means, you know, hmm. what this, where this, where this actually this idea of war and heaven came from, whether it's the, you know, from whatever uh, um, tradition you're talking about, it's a spiritual war, okay? Spiritual could mean simply quantum war, you know? It could be the quantum realm could be the source of all of what we call spirit. You know, we, we don't know. But, you know, it's time for us to start trying to figure this out logically. And it's also time, I think, for us not to be scared to look at things and, and think out loud. Because, you know, you can't go around worrying all the time about what people are going to think and say and, and, and so forth. Because if you do, you're going to limit your ability to, to figure things out. Absolutely, yeah. Very, uh, like I said, we're, we're deep down the rabbit hole here. And, uh, well, hopefully we don't run into anything strange down there. <laughs> um, now, how do you, you also mentioned the elemental type beings in the, uh, in the sto- in in the book, so I, I guess like well, how do, how do the elementals fit into this hierarchy of of creatures, if you will? Well, you know, I mean, what, what is an elemental? I mean, what we call an elemental? We're we talking about a spirit, and we're talking about a physical being. We're we talking about one of these uh, uh, quantum beings that can move back and forth. I mean, who knows? We, it could be all of the above. People say, well, you know, that's not in the Bible, but actually, you know, people have said it to me, it is in the Bible. You know, you're told in the Bible to not have to not have dealings with elemental beings. Well, if you're told not to have dealings with them, then that basically is saying that they exist. Um, I, I think the whole idea there is that whatever those things are, they're kind of sort of the natural world in that they may be part of this quantum equation, but that we don't really, 
interact with them. They have something that they do, uh, and they're supposed to do it, and we're supposed to, we leave them to do their thing, and they leave us to do our thing. Or that's the way it's supposed to work. Right, but they're not leaving us alone. Um, it depends on what they really are. You know, calling calling Jen elementals is not accurate. Okay, you know, to me, the the Jen would be the same thing as the so-called aliens, as the so-called quantum beings that can manipulate the quantum and physical realm for their own purposes. But so, live within the Earth. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess I, let me hit on some stories that are in the book because uh, a couple times I, I, I earmarked uh, virtually because I read it on the Kindle, earmarked a couple of uh, strange stories that, that I had never heard before. One of them was this uh, – the story came from Betty Hill about this island that was populated by – for lack of a better term, Bigfoot, uh, you know, a group of Bigfoot in Connecticut, which I thought was really crazy, and, and it went on for like three years. I guess extrapolate on that and tell me what you, what you know about that, because I've never heard that story before. I'd have to – was that in caverns? Yeah. You know, here's the thing about it. Does this have to do with the fact that they would try to catch them and they would disappear? I just mean in general how weird that is. I mean, it just yeah, doesn't yeah. seem I mean, to add I mean, up. I mean, like, it's just, yeah, it's just the same thing you hear over and over again. I mean, um, you know – Physical beings, you know, you should be able to run them down. You should be able to track them somehow, you know, watch them from an airplane or something. But no, they, you know, they see them, they chase them, they run them to a dead end, and they're gone, you know. Hmm. Um, again and again, this happens. It happens not just with Bigfoot. It happens with, you know, the little people or, or you know, any, any anomalous being. You know, it seems to happen again and again. There's evidence that there was something physically there, but when you try to chase it down to its source, it, it eludes you. Always, always, and, and so. And you think this has more to do with the manipulation of density rather than they can I escape think, into a little hole all of a sudden, or maybe they can they can reduce their density to escape into a little hole. Well, I think it could be both. I yeah. think it could be both. You know, if you read further in the book, you'll see uh, an account by Spanish explorer um, who uh, was in uh, North America, and he was hanging out with some Indians, he and his men, and some Native Americans, and. And they found that these Native Americans were greatly in fear of a being that they called, uh, in their language, Mr. Bad Thing. Oh, yeah, I remember the story. They yeah. Explored, yeah, they called it Senor Malacosa. And this being supposedly came out of the earth. He could alter his density. And then he would come out through the cracks in the ground. And he would become physical. And he would do bad things to people and uh, cut people apart and put them back together, which, of course, sounds a lot like an alien abduction type scenario. And... uh, uh this uh, Spanish explorer basically told them that you know, they were familiar with things like this and that uh, where they came from, they had put an end to it by using religion to put an end to it, you know, their, their religious faith. And that's what they told these Indians to do. So, you know, you have these sorts of stories about these beings that have this malleable or, or uh, this, this density that they can, they can alter at will. And so you have to start wondering, you know, how would this fit into the scientific point of view? We can't just assume that all these stories are just, you know, the imaginings of madmen because there are too many of them. Right. Okay? So, you know, you have to start saying, you know, let's look at this from a logical point of view and let's look at the, the uh, what we're learning more and more in the scientific realm and see how it ties into this. And I think the more we do that, the more we see that there are connections, for instance, with, with, uh, with uh, quantum physics and... Uh, um, quantum mechanics and things like this, and it, if we just extrapolate from the, from the micro to the macro realm, that these things start to make more sense. 
Well, it's, it's you know, like I said, uh, it's troubling because it, we're really left at the mercy of our own abilities, in a sense, and our abilities to perceive as well as defend against this this thing, you know, yeah. whatever these the, their agenda is. Well, you know, you have legends all around the world. Again, every, every nation, every country, every people are beings that have come into conflict with the people of that land, and there's always some hero, this or that hero, who does prevail over them. I mean, you know, it, it may be a major undertaking, but it can be done. So, you know, I think that uh, I think it can be done. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I did. I think you you made a really good point here, and this kind of goes back to stuff we've been talking about earlier. But I I think it bears mentioning, and, and I'm sure you'll have more to say about it. But that that is that it stands to reason. You argue that uh, the the diversity of the underground entities suggests that they must come from Earth. And additionally, because they're mammalian or reptilian, which right, which are earthly they, 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 creatures. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, they have. Okay, look. If you look at encounters with all these anomalous beings, or say ninety-eight percent of them, including so-called you know aliens, you'll find that they follow a an earthly vertebrate template, just as do, for instance, you know, the demons and devils of medieval folklore. You know, an earthly vertebrate template. And that means they have one head, two eyes, a mouth, a nose, or nostrils or something. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a, a neck. They have a central spine. They're bifurcated and that they have, you know, two arms and two legs. Um, you know, th- there's a basically a, a basic template, and then you take it even further, and they'll have mammalian, reptilian, amphibian characteristics or any mix thereof. Um, you know, they, they have all the characteristics of earthly life. You know, if you look at our biosphere, and I talk about this in the book, you know, if you were to come here from another planet and you've never seen any earth beings before, and you come here and you see a hermit crab, a Maasai warrior, an Eskimo, an elephant, a spider, and a blue whale, you would think, oh, my God, you know, these must all come from different worlds, so it's too different. But genetically, they're all very closely related. They really are. Yeah. They all come have a, they have a common genetic heritage and, you know, origin. So, that when you start looking at it like that, these beings that appear so, um, outrageous when people first see them because they're strange, they seem so, you know, otherworldly, but really they're not otherworldly at all because they fit quite well into the biodiversity of the earth. In fact, they fit even closer to us than say a blue whale does or a dolphin, or a hermit crab. Right, right, because they're, you know, sentient, they have... They're humanoids. They're, they're more human... Yeah, exactly, that was the word I was yeah. looking for, they're humanoids. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's more in their interest to for us to believe that they're gods, that they're so superior to us, that we have no choice, that they're doing us a favor when they do the things they do, that they come from another planet, that they come from far, far away. All these things to me, are no different than the guy who wants to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't trust anything that came out of the inside of the earth if, if it was talking to me. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's... How do you know what it is or where it comes from? You don't know, you know? Right. So here's the thing. You know, my advice to people that are into this kind of stuff, don't believe everything you hear, whether it's from people like me and you and anybody else. Think for yourself, figure it out, and, and weigh the evidence for yourself, and then certainly do not believe Anybody that says they've got, that seems to have an agenda, 
where they want to be a big shot and they want to be the expert on something because a lot of times they're going to try to keep you from finding out other information. Right. And the, and the third thing is don't believe the anomalous phenomena itself. Absolutely, yeah. 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 That's the mistake most people make, you know. Yes, it is. They take the Ouija board's word for it. Yeah, exactly. Now, you one thing that you said in the book completely blew me away was that uh, only human beings have over 4,000 known genetic defects. Right. I, I mean, and, and that goes into the whole genetic tinkering idea, but, I mean, that's a lot. We're not talking about, you know, a handful here. So, I mean, what yeah. do you make of that? Just. I, I, I mean, I won't even, I won't even begin to suppose. I'll just ask. What, what do you make well, of that? You know, I, I think there's a lot going on there. I think that it could be that that there are, you know, crossbreeding things. And, and honestly, since I wrote that, more information has come out. That was written several years ago. Mm-hmm. And so now we know through the Human Genome Project, for instance. Now here we go. I'm going to be very politically incorrect, and I guess your listeners will just have to deal with it because that's tough. But this is not me. This is science. Okay. Uh, the Human Genome Project has now basically discovered that Northern Europeans and Europeans in general have about 4% Neanderthal DNA. 4% of our DNA is Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. Um, Asians have about 2% Neanderthal DNA. I believe it was about 2%. And about 2% of something called Denisovian DNA. Okay, Neanderthals and Denisovians are not modern humans. Okay? Right. So we are hybrids. We are a hybrid species. Then they find that Sub-Saharan, Sub-Saharan Africans have zero Neanderthal DNA and zero Denisovian DNA. They are whatever they originally have been. But now, last week, a story came out where an African-American man, had his family gave his DNA to the Human Genome Project after he passed away. And you can find this online. And his DNA indicated that un- unlike every other human sample of DNA that has been looked at by the Human Genome Project, that his DNA, his chromosome, his Y chromosome, his Y chromosome, his, in other words, his, his male paternal DNA going all the way back, is 340,000 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whereas before, they had figured out that all human beings have a common male ancestor about 200 40,000 years ago or 220,000 or something. So, you know, some number like that. This guy has a paternal ancestor that is so old that the, the, the geneticist said it predates humans. Now, that's a big statement because that's saying that it predates Homo erectus, who was a type of human. It predates uh, Homo egaster, who was a type of human. Homo means human. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about basically what they're finding is that the races of the earth, so-called races, our differences may be due not just to what we have in common, because we do, we have a lot in common, but also to what we don't have in common. Which is these ancestry. So, yeah, which is ancestry. So if you start looking at it like that, and then you take it one step further and you say, okay, now that's going on. What if some of these ancient groups of people went underground? What if some of these ancient groups of people developed civilizations and left the planet and now they're coming back from nearby planets? What if some of these ancient groups of people have been here all along and have been manipulating things and taking advantage of the other groups of people? Um, and what if some of these have diverged so far from the common tree that when they do interact with us and uh, crossbreeding does occur, 
that there are genetic problems. That would explain all these genetic differences. Yes. Just now, just yes, it would. you know, I, we we certainly don't hold science to uh, up as a god here on this program either. But what what does yeah. mainstream science have to say about all these genetic abnormalities? Well, that, nothing really. I mean, but but this human genome thing seems to me to indicate that you know finally we can talk about these things without somebody saying, well, if you say that you know you're that I'm part Neanderthal, that you're racist, or if you say that this African guy is part pre-homo erectus, then you're a racist. You know, it's it's a bunch of crap because it's it's a way to shut people up. Right. You know, now when you finally put science in it, you know, you'll notice when you read these articles that they really try to dance around these things, but they do come out and tell you that this is what they're finding. So, to me, that makes it more fascinating because that means that, that you know, all these beings in the fossil record, well, not all of them maybe, but a lot of them, they didn't just, just disappear, you know, go extinct. But they were they bred with people who became modern humans, and that's where we all came from. Yeah. And to me, that's fascinating. That just is, that goes back to the whole kind of like ancient aliens idea, but it's been corrupted by the outside alien concept, if you will. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, just just a change in the human race, and then maybe the changers just went underground, possibly. Yeah, maybe more times than, you know, than, than once. I mean. Right. I'll give you a good example, man. You know, it could be all over the planet too. You know, yeah. I mean, where and, they, and I, you know, one place they might have done something here, and they might have done something at another place. Sure, and you know, we, I talked about this in in uh, CCCC. You know, the the whole uh, Flores uh, Hobbit, as mm-hmm. they call it, situation. I mean, here, what, what basically happened there was they they discover this cave, and in it they find indications of multiple. Generations of habitation by a, a a non-human, not modern human, but still somewhat some kind of human. They call it Homo floresiensis or, or flores human. Yeah, the hobbits. Yeah, but they find that these things lived there for eighty thousand years. Eighty thousand years. Modern humans, in whatever forms we've had, we've supposedly been around for about a hundred thousand years, or maybe not even that long. People say fifty thousand if you just talk about. You know, Cro-Magnon and, and, and Homo sapiens. So, you know, or 60,000. But these things were in living on that island, in that cave, for 80,000 years. That means that when the sea levels were lower, they might have been able to walk to the mainland. Okay? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're an island chain that runs up to Asia. Right. Or, oh, in 80,000 years, at some point, some of them would have gotten to the mainland. I'm sorry, it would have happened. They might have floated on a log by accident, but somebody would have got there. Okay, it's just that's just the way things work. So then you have legends all over the world of little people. Well, we modern humans in our various forms, because that's what we're talking about, kind of like subspecies of or, or, or subbreeds of dogs. That's what humans are, you know, our various forms. We colonize the planet. Why couldn't these little people have colonized the planet? They learn to stay away from us mostly, except when they want something. So you have legends all over the world about little people who live in caves, who live underground, and then you have this find in Flores. Then you take it a little bit further and you start looking at the, the folklore of the, of the Flores Islanders. The Flores Islanders say, oh, yeah, we know all about those little people. We killed them all about 400 years ago. <laughs> oh, then the, the, the scientists say, that can't be true because the most recent find we found, most recent bones we found were eight, only 8,000 years old. They said, oh, no, no, uh-uh. 
So, you know, we call them Ibu Gogo, which means little grandmother who eats everything. And they said, uh, you know, they came into the village, they would come down to the villages at night. They would steal livestock, crops, and babies. Hmm. Okay. And so we got tired of it. We went back to their caves and we built huge fires in the mouth of the cave and we burned it for days and days and it sucked all the air out of the cave and they all died. <laughs> they told how they killed them and everything. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So now you look in Northern Europe. For instance, for the British Isles, you have legends of little people who come out at night, they steal livestock, they steal crops, and they kidnap human infants. You go to Northern Europe, you find the same thing. You go to Japan, you find the same thing. Right. You go to just about anywhere, you find the same legends. And here we have this physical proof in, in, from Flores Island that there were beings like that that actually lived and that, according to the local people, their habits were the same as all these other folkloric forms. So, again, Occam's Razor tells us that no matter how absurd it may seem at first, that the most logical explanation is going to be the simplest explanation, and that is that these beings did exist and they very well have spread around the world just like we did. And as they went, they evolved, they changed, they developed, and they became characteristic of whatever region they lived in, just like we did. Exactly. But do you think, see, but these, they sound more feral, if you will, unless the, the intelligent sort of, uh, depictions that oh. we see of the ETs. So, but, but, but we've, we've talked here at length about it, an ecosystem. So there could be multiple yeah. different, again, exactly. multiple different sort of entities and beings. Some may right. be evil, exactly. some may be indifferent. Well, you know, you think about it like this. If you were three feet tall, two to three feet tall, and everybody else around you was a giant, and you're competing for resources, your best bet is going to be to come out at night and take what you want. Right. And over time, you're going to develop strategies and other things that make that much easier for you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, where your, your chances of success are going to be greatly enhanced. So... To us, it's evil, and I, you know, I'd say somebody kidnapping babies for any purposes is evil. But, you know, we, we're talking about something here that is is alien to us in that it's not human like we are, but it's still um, part of this world's ecosystem and planet. It's not, you know, you said feral. Yeah, I guess they're feral, but we're we're feral too. I mean, we go out. If you want to use that terminology, we go out and we kill food and. We take other animals back and raise them in captivity so we can kill them and eat them. That's kind of feral. Right, I suppose. Yeah, I, I guess that, you know, well, I meant, you know, wild. Uh, but, but, but I yeah, I mean, same. yeah. But the thing is, supposedly these, some of these underground diminutives, they develop their own civilizations. Over time, they would, obviously, you know. They're going to develop their own civilizations. Maybe these are the source of some of the, the diminutive uh, so-called aliens that people see. Hmm. You know, who knows? We, you know, we're just now starting to figure these things out. And it's interesting to me how more scientific discoveries seem to point to there being evidence for these various folklore accounts all from all around the world. Well, I thought it was interesting, too, uh, to, to go back to the folklore part that, you know, in the, uh, in the 12, uh, trends, I guess you could say, or overarching, uh, themes, one of them was that these, that, that there's this sort of, uh, aspect where part of it is it, these people or these entities or the, this ecosystem is, in, you know, on purpose or by choice underground. But there's also this this whole aspect of of that there's some kind of race that's like locked underground that's being yes. that's being held captive inside the earth, which I thought was really interesting. 
Yeah, and that, that's the same thing I talked about earlier with the, the fathers of the Nephilim, you know, who, who would have been involved in the so-called war in heaven at some point, probably. But, you know, they, they're locked underground because they're, because they, you know, it, it's like they were, they were given this, this great edict, which is kind of like the Star Trek thing, you know, don't get involved in what's going on on the planet, you know, what these people are doing. You know, don't, well, the prime directive, you know. Yeah. And they violated the prime directive by basically, uh, interbreeding with human beings and then taking their, their sons who were hybrids, who had a certain form of hybrid vigor, but physically and intellectually. And they set their sons up as demigods to be worshipped and to rule everybody else. And so, you know, they're basically, their punishment is not only are we going to destroy your sons, your offspring, and their offspring, but at the same time, you're going to be put somewhere where you can't do this again. Hmm. Right. And, you know, you the, 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 the book of Enoch, the book of Jasher, the book of Jubilees, they all talk about this. Um, the book of Jude in uh, the New Testament has a direct quote from the book of Enoch. About half the book of Jude comes directly from the book of Enoch. Most Christians don't know that, but it does. So obviously it was considered inspired enough to put in the Bible. Um, where it talks about it, it says, for the, for the angels who kept not their first estate, but lusted after strange flesh, are bound in chains of eternal darkness until the judgment of the great day. So, you know, this is a theme, though, that's not just in Christianity. It's, it's, it's in various other ancient traditions. Um, it's a very old theme, you know, that, that, that there was this group of beings who decided they were going to break all the rules and that their descendants may still be around. Yeah. It makes you wonder, yeah, when the end times come, is it because yeah. they figured a way out? <laughs> well, you know, the, if you read... The literature, like the, the Apocalypse or Revelation, it talks about Abaddon, who is in the Greek Apollyon, the destroyer. Um, he's called the angel of the bottomless pit, and he opens up the bottomless pit and he releases all these terrors. So, so that yeah, that's what we might have to look forward to. Hey man, lock and load. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's just overall, this whole thing is fascinating, and I, I can't put over caverns, cauldrons, and concealed creatures enough, and, you know, it's a testament to you that, and, and, you know, a detriment to my own abilities as a reader that it's so deeply well-researched that after a while, I just found myself getting lost in all these stories, because it is such an amazing collective history of something going on underground that, that it surprises me that, I guess, that, I don't know, that this isn't even something that's, I mean, you talk about ETs and UFOs and stuff like that being ridiculed and marginalized by the mainstream, but the, the whole idea that there's even a possibility of some kind of underground ecosystem is is not even remotely discussed by by the mainstream. Well, why do you think that is? <laughs> they don't want us to look, man. They don't yeah, want us don't to want, even think about it. They don't want you it. to look. Yeah, they don't want you to look. Why should you figure out what we? That used to be called the secret of the ages. Yeah. Why, why do they want you to figure out the secret of the ages? They, you know, it's one of those things where, um, if they can, if they can have you watching, uh, vapid reality programs about the paranormal and, and the strange and, you know, they can keep you believing whatever this or that person says and the so-called experts and everything's ancient aliens and they can keep you, you know, completely bound up in not thinking and just being force fed this stuff and they don't have to worry about whatever benefits they may or may not derive from that information themselves. Right. Um, you know. Now, you you know, you know this is like the secret of the ages. Have you ever been, has anyone ever been like, listen, Mike, just don't go there. Just get off the underground thing. Just this is too. I have had a lot of weird stuff happen. Like what? Uh, just, what, what, you, what you feel okay, comfortable okay. talking about. I'll, I'll just give you one example, sure. but I mean a, a lot of weird stuff. I, 
I I was going to do a show uh, with Kevin Smith. You know who Kevin Smith is? Mm-hmm. Yep. This show? Yep. Yeah. So I was going to do this thing. It was called the uh, the Alternate Universe Conference, mm-hmm. and I was one of his first speakers. And I had this elaborate slideshow set up. And actually, what ended up becoming eventually uh, the problem of density in regard to non-human encounters is a book. At first, it was a much smaller slideshow and talk. And I was going to do the show for his for over Skype with him. And so he gets me on the line, and then just as I'm about to start talking, he puts me on hold. And on my screen, it says, on hold, Kevin Smith, you know how Skype has a little icon to the side. Yeah. Call on hold. Meanwhile, on his end, I just disappeared. There was nothing. And he kept trying to recontact me, and there was no contact. Finally, he called my cell phone, but he had to keep on going because the thing was an ongoing event, a paid event where people paid to participate. Yeah. It was a live stream. Yeah, it's like the iConference thing. Yeah, the iConference. Yeah. Yeah. And so... I, fixed, I knew something weird was going on, so I took screenshots of everything. And so we got together, and I sent the screenshots. And he said, no, man, he said, I never put you on hold, you know. Weird. And Yeah. And so I got back on the next time he had one, and I did my thing. But that's just one example. Things like that happen, um, you know, and you have to start. When something like that happens, you know, you have weird stuff happen like 15 or 20 times, you have to start wondering. <laughs> Right, right. Now that's just so that's kind of a weird technical thing. But have you ever been like, you know, warned off or threatened or anything like that, or is it kind of you know you kind of left to do your own thing? Uh, I kind of left to do my own thing for the most part. I mean, you get weird things that happen, but you know, you I think that your attitude is going to uh, whatever your personal attitude is is going to influence how people attempt to shut you up. Probably. Right, right. So, if you're if you're open to being shaken yeah, up, so, then you're going to get shaken. Yeah, up. exactly, exactly, and and. You know, I've had a lot of weird stuff happen, but I've never had anybody actually come out and say, you better shut up, you better not do this or that. That's yeah. good. Yeah, no one wants that to happen. Yeah, and if I did, if, if it happened, <laughs> then I would just be more encouraged. I, I would I would actually find that very gratifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because then you know you're uh, really, you're really stepping on some toes there. Yeah. Now, I take it you, think, have you ever gone, see, because I, I, I'm kind of claustrophobic. I, I wouldn't even go into one of these caves or caverns and stuff, and you, you, do, you have stories in the book of people who have gone into yeah. these things. I mean, have yeah. you ever done that? Or I, I would not uh, suggest years, people do years, that, but, you know. Years ago, yes, I, I did. I have done that. It's, uh, you know, no weird encounter thing. Very strange, though. Very strange environment. Very hostile. Um, talking about, like, a, what's called a wild cave. Um, you know, no evidence of civilizations in the ones that went in, but they were ones that cavers or spelunkers frequented quite often. Yeah. Very dirty. Uh, lots of bat guano everywhere, you know, that kind of thing. But I'll tell you one thing, you have never experienced darkness until you go way down in the cave and turn all the lights off. Oh, yeah, it's like almost, I said, I mean, that's, that's... It's almost physical. It's so thick. I mean, it's indescribable. You think it's dark in your room when you close all the, you know, the, the blackout, the blackout curtains and, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing. It's, it's indescribable unless you go down in there. But, you know, there are plenty of encounters that people have reported in caves and mines. Uh, trap miners and trap cavers and stuff um, of anomalous events. And I can't re- remember what it was, but recently, just very recently, there was an event where somebody was underground and they said something strange happened that indicated that they weren't down there by themselves. I can't remember exactly what it was, though. See, that would be the scary part, too, because, like, you know, you, you could go down in there for, like, days and keep going deeper and deeper, right? Yeah, you could. Oh, God. I mean, sooner or later, you're going to be, you're gonna, you know, you'll die of 
thirst or hunger or, or something. Hypothermia. Hypothermia is a big one. You mentioned one guy in the book who was, it was from the Shaver era, who went in and he, I think you said he died of like a yellow jacket attack or something crazy like that. Yeah, that was a very strange thing. His name, his name was Charles Marco or Marco, mm-hmm. and he he uh, was big into the Shaver theory and stuff. And there's a cave in Arkansas called Blowing Cave. And there were some guys that found a hole in the floor of one of the caverns in that cave, one of the rooms, and they went down the hole and they had this story. They told them how they, they, they went through several caves and caverns, and then eventually they came to what was obviously a machine tunnel. And as they went along the machine tunnel, it became a phosphorescent, and they had all these. Eventually they encountered some, some people who lived down there. They basically told them that they were, that they had fled underground during the cataclysm that we call the flood, and that they had been down there ever since. Uh, which kind of ties in with everything else we've been talking about. Yeah. So it was a really big deal, and these people had a lot of credibility, so people believed that they were telling the truth. And Mark Code decided he was going to lead an expedition into Blowing Cave. Um, so they went to lead the expedition, and when they got in there, um, this hole in the ground, a huge slab had fallen from the ceiling and covered the hole that they'd all seen there before. It was completely buried. And then they were attacked by yellow jackets, and they swarmed on Marco and... I stung him to death. Oh, God. Yeah. That's horrifying. Very strange. Very strange. What the hell's a yellow jacket doing in a cavern? <laughs> well, well, yellow yeah. jackets, live on, they live underground. Yeah. And like, if you, they have their nests underground, but, but it's, it's just, you know, it's the type of anomalous thing that seems to happen a lot when people get too close to some of these sites. Right. And you mentioned, too, it seems like whenever somebody finds one of these things, they come back and it's all disrupted, covered up. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. So. It happens all the time. So if you're under there, you know. You, and somebody comes in and finds you, of course you're going to, like, <laughs> you know, destroy your doorway and find a new way out and stuff. So right. It makes exactly. sense from, from their point of hey, view on the inside. Hey, work, work for the Viet Cong. Exactly, exactly. Now tell me a little bit about uh, Unraveling the Secrets. This is your your radio show with Tim Swartz and uh, Rick Osmond. So uh, what, well, what's yeah. that all about and how that come about and what do you guys got going sure. on there? Well, Rick has left the show finally. He came off and on for a while, and he finally decided to call it quits. So now it's just Tim and I. And as you know, if you know Tim Schwartz, Tim's a, a really good guy. He's he's a major investigator of the paranormal and the outre and the 14. He, he's a conspiracy guy. He runs a website called Conspiracy Journal, uh, conspiracyjournal.com. And uh, so Tim, Tim and I, I was brought onto the show as a favor to, to Rick and and uh, the original. Host Rick and hosts Rick and Dennis Crenshaw, and Dennis left and he asked me to be on. And um, at that time, I came on with a guy who's now my publisher, Brian Kennard of Graves Distractions. Mm-hmm. So we were on there as the host, and then Rick came back. So there were three hosts, and it was a lot of fun. We kind of do a roundtable conversational thing on there. And then uh, after a while, um, Brian left because the publishing company was taking up so much of his time. He's got so many books going now, and uh, I brought Tim on be host with me, and then Rick came back, and then Rick left again, so now it's just me and Tim. So it's, it's been a kind of a roller coaster, but I've been there for about two years now, I think, or a year and a half. Nice, and nice. It's a lot of fun. We have a lot of interesting uh, guests, interesting topics, and uh, we're not politically correct. We have a lot of fun on there. And we have a, you know, the, the producer comes on some, and he's kind of a, a character, so we have a lot of fun with him. Um, but it comes on Saturday night. If you go to unravelingthesecrets.com, you'll, you can listen live, it, and there's a call-in number and a chat room and all this kind of stuff, and it's from uh, m- midnight Eastern till 2 a.m. 
on Saturdays. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm checking out the website right now. It looks pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah, and uh, also, mm-hmm. um, you know, we really look for people to call in, and interact. I mean, to, to, to us, when we can get that, that. That's that's big. So people like to call in, and interact with hosts on these topics. Uh, that's a good show to do it on. Nice, nice. Yeah, sounds good. Now what? What's next for you? Of course, people can find out more at MottImorphic.com, and that's spelled M-O-T-T-I-Morphic.com. Pretty simple to uh, put all that together. There'll be links all over Banal of America for it. But what do you – now, this is the third edition of CCCC. Do you expect a fourth edition down the line? Are you going to work – and obviously, you have the new piece out. Um, I don't have it in front of me here. Let me get my – my notepad up here. Obviously, you have uh, the problem of density in regard to non-human encounters. That's out right now, too. So uh, what, right. what, what, what do you got cooking, I guess, is the best way to put it? Well, you know, first, if, if people go to monomorphic.com, M-O-T-T-I-M-O-R-P-H-I-C.com, they can find links to all my books. I would prefer for them to go there to find the links because I want them to get the editions of my books that are authorized by me and are not being pirated. So that would be the place to do it, and they, get, and they will find it. Uh, less expensive editions. You know, nothing kills me so much as seeing somebody selling an old edition that's being illegally produced for $150 on Amazon when they can go get one for $17.95, and it's a more recent edition with more stuff. Yeah, that's pretty. People been, are that's pretty yeah. messed up that people are pirating that. That's yeah, you know, exactly. That's messed up. So anyway, yeah. So if they go to uh, monomorphic.com, they can get uh, the latest books, not just the nonfiction stuff, but my fiction work, which is uh, sort of uh, satirical. Fantasy fiction, it's a lot of fun, it's funny stuff, um, and some pulp fiction. I write pulp fiction of various types. So they can go there and check that out and uh, uh, see some art samples of my art galleries and stuff that are there. And uh, I don't think I'm going to do another CCCC edition. I think I'm going to move on to new things in that area. Right now I'm doing a lot with the radio show and also got some new ideas for some other books, but I'm not going to talk about them just yet until they coalesce. That's what I did with the last one, with the, the treatise uh, on the density. Yeah. I, I, I kind of let people know I was working on something, but, it, you know, I didn't want to come out and say it because I didn't want everybody jumping on it before I actually got it out there. So Exactly. Um, yeah, I've got some things going on. And of course, I work as an artist, and a freelance artist and designer, too. So Nice. Um, yeah. So anybody, anyway, if people want to go to monomorphic.com, they can find out whatever they need to know. Awesome, awesome. Well, on that note, Mike, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I I, I just really enjoyed this conversation, and the two hours flew by. Um, I'm just I'm stunned that it's already 4:15 here, uh, and we we started at about 2:10. So I just can't believe we've gone so long, and and really just uh, such an engrossing conversation. Really, kind of threw the talking points out the window and just jammed with you, and, and really enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, as, as we've said here over the course of the program, the, the new treatise is The Problem of Density in Regard to Non-Human Encounters. That'll give folks a lot of insight into what may be going on here with these, uh, let's call them alternative entities for now. And I cannot put over caverns, cauldrons, and concealed creatures enough. This really is the definitive book on uh, what may be going on right under our feet. And for people who haven't really considered the possibility, you would definitely want to go out and pick up this book because uh, it is tremendous and just amazingly well-researched, completely uh, thorough, looking at all of the traditions of uh, these these stories about things underground and then looking at what may be going on and what it might be all about. So, I, like I said, I cannot put it over enough. thoroughly enjoyed the book and really enjoyed this conversation, Mike. So, again, thank you for coming on the show. Well, Tim, thanks a lot for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Um We'll have to have you on Unraveling the Secret sometime. I'd be happy to do it, buddy. All right. Thank you, man.
That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to William Michael Mott for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Be sure to check out his websites, www.mottimorphic.com. You spell that M-O-T-T-I-M-O-R-P-H-I-C.com. And be sure to tune in to his podcast, www.unravelingthesecrets which can be heard at UnravelingTheSecrets.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. However, as is the case when we have a long delay between episodes, we are going to eschew listener feedback here on this edition of the program because I want to get the show out to folks as fast as possible and because I want to take a moment here and reflect on the Boston Marathon bombings, which took place a couple of weeks ago and really just a few miles here from BOA HQ. And uh, that's really the reason why it's taken so long for us to get this program out to folks. Uh, it's kind of strange in a lot of ways when reality butts up against the proverbial unreality of the paranormal and for the last couple of weeks I just haven't really felt as motivated as usual to get back on the esoteric horse if you will when the real world has this tremendous pull on you to get back into the speculative realm of the paranormal is sort of a difficult proposition and I, I, before I even get into all that, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll throw out a little warning here for folks. I, language may get a bit colorful. So if you're listening with some kids, wait to tune into this segment later on down the line. Because uh, I may get into some colorful language. And I want to give people a heads up here as we proceed. Thankfully and fortunately, I don't have any crazy story to share with people. Uh, I was well away from harm's way, although I want to thank all the folks who reached out to me in the aftermath of the bombing to make sure that I was doing okay. But I know plenty of people that knew people that were affected by it, and I know people that were perilously close to being affected by it. A very good friend of mine was eating at a restaurant maybe two blocks from the finish line and was going to be at the finish line if she had been allowed to cross the road. So this thing hit home in just such a deep way that it's difficult for me to even get it across, really, I think, to the listeners here. Just to give you some perspective on Patriot's Day here in Massachusetts, it's kind of like our own personal 4th of July. And it's a celebration of, obviously, the first shots fired in the American Revolution, as well as sort of this athletic tradition that is Boston, with the Boston Marathon and the annual morning Red Sox game, which is the only baseball game they play in the morning. And it is just the best day of the year. Everybody loves Patriots Day. We call it Marathon Monday. And if you're not working, and a lot of people aren't because all the state and federal employees have the day off in Massachusetts, if you're not working, you're celebrating, you're at a barbecue somewhere, you're going into Boston to see the marathon, you're going to the Red Sox game. It's really a very unique celebration of Massachusetts and Boston. So that's 
what really profoundly affected so many people here. This is one of the very best days of the year, and for this to happen was shocking, uh, horrifying, really, in a lot of ways. And, of course, my heart goes out to all the people who were injured and the folks that died as a result of the bombing and the subsequent manhunt. Um, the best way to really try and get this across to folks is between April 15th, when the bombing happened, and April 19th, when the manhunt concluded, we are talking about just a non-stop barrage of news coverage. You could not go anywhere without hearing about this. And even today, I see the faces and the names of the victims everywhere, all the time. And you just cannot escape it. So... I take this very personally. Ultimately, that's really what kept me from jumping back on the horse here at Banal of America, because I was glued to the TV and the internet over that entire week, following this story, watching it all unfold, and last week, in the sort of uh, quiet aftermath of it all, really just needed sort of a week to decompress from all that, because it was absolutely exhausting, especially that final 24 hours where the entire city of Boston was locked down, the entire city of Watertown was locked down, a whole bunch of surrounding communities were locked down. Where I live, a very large percentage of the businesses were shut down because their employees live in areas where they could not leave their homes. So it completely paralyzed the entire Boston metro region. And even if we weren't locked down, nobody wanted to leave the house because everybody was just completely captivated by the manhunt situation. So that was kind of an interesting turn of events, I guess you could say. And I've seen some folks out there taking shots at the lockdown situation and the subsequent manhunt and saying how the people of Boston allowed this martial law situation to happen, and they didn't stand up to the police, and all this other horseshit is really what it is. Because what happened, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many, 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 I'd say probably the vast majority of people who live in the area, was that we wanted these guys brought to justice. And we were willing to do whatever it took, and... If that meant staying at home on a Friday and not leaving the house and letting the police and all of the various law enforcement agencies take to the streets and find this guy, that's what we were willing to do. We were willing to shut down the entire region to capture this guy. It was a cooperative community effort. It wasn't some kind of uh, nefarious government plot to keep everybody in their homes and exercise martial law to see if they could pull it off. It was, as I said, a cooperative community effort. And to read some of the conspiracy-minded folks criticizing the people of Boston for that is just absolutely foolish and just ridiculous. Uh, I, I can't stress that enough. We were willing to do whatever it took to catch this guy and that was the perspective of, I'd say, just about everybody in the area. Because we were so hurt and angry 
I cannot express that enough to you folks. Marathon Monday is a great source of civic pride. So for that event to be attacked, for that day to suffer such a tragedy, uh, I don't have the words to express really what that meant for a lot of us. Uh, it, it brought up heartbreak. It brought up anger. It brought up bewilderment. How could somebody do this to us? And I'm getting choked up just thinking about it because that, that was really the feeling of so many of us that day that, that we just could not believe that someone could be so evil. It really was an emotional day. I, I'm still emotional when I think about it. It was just, just, uh, I guess surreal is, is still the word uh, I, I keep going back to. Just a very, very surreal turn of events. Uh, I know I'm probably going to disappoint some of my listeners here when I say this, but I just cannot get on board with this just mindless talk that this was some kind of false flag terror attack. I do not believe it. Uh, it just does not add up to me but I'm also not some blind believer in everything I'm told by the government. I've been doing this far too long for that. So, sure, there may have been some nefarious cover-up in the sense of a cover-your-ass responsibility type thing. Maybe somebody dropped the ball along the way and this could have been prevented, and we're not going to get the full story there. I'm perfectly open to that kind of thing. But to think that... The government orchestrated this entire thing and set off those bombs and these two guys that uh, one of them's dead and the other one's been arrested, that they're patsies. It doesn't pass the banal smell test. It, it does not have the veracity that I expect from a credible theory. There's a possibility that there's some shenanigans involved from the government to tailor the story of what went down to make them look good. I'm perfectly willing to take a look at that kind of thing, but I just do not at all see any evidence that this was some kind of false flag terror attack, and I just uh, am absolutely disgusted by the folks who jumped on this as soon as it happened and were declaring false flag terror attack and saying crazy shit, saying mindless stuff that the, the victims of the bombing were Actors hired by the government. Give me a fucking break. Are you kidding me? Some little kid, some eight-year-old fucking kid is dead. And what are you going to say? His sister who lost her legs, she's a fucking actor? Get the fuck out of here, you know? Those are the kind of people that get me so angry. They don't know what they're talking about. They're making shit up. And, you know, when you live in Texas or you live in Pittsburgh, or you live in Minnesota, or you live in Seattle, you know, it's really easy to watch this stuff and say, oh, this looks like a movie, this is fake. But when you live in the area, and you see the victims on your local news every day, and you see the updates from the people who lost their limbs and are just getting out of the hospital and face a tremendously difficult life for themselves ahead, and then you get on the computer and you see some idiot saying that they're actors? As I said, folks, 
give me a fucking break. You don't know what you're talking about. And a lot of these folks who are really driving this story are, quite frankly, just exploiting it uh, to make money, to generate website hits, to sell DVDs, and to generate fear for their audience. So that's the way I feel. And, you know, if I've upset people because I don't get on board with the false flag conspiracy talk, uh, you know, I'm not going to apologize because it's bullshit. It makes me very angry and it makes me very, very disappointed in a lot of people out there who probably have the best intentions but are really being led astray by people who I believe don't have the best intentions. There's this fear-mongering attitude, there's this rush to declare false flag as soon as something happens that is just absolutely fucking ridiculous. I can't, I can't say that more clearly. If you believe some of these conspiracy folks, everything is a conspiracy. So we're saying what? Aurora and uh, the Newtown shootings and now the Boston bombing, this is all false flag, I'm sorry, but anybody that believes that, you need to get in line with reality. The human race is very good, but there are evil elements, and sometimes these evil elements strike out at us, and that's what happened in Boston, and that's what happened in Newtown, and that's what happened in Aurora. These aren't grand conspiracies, folks. They're just human nature, sadly, and I don't quite know what else to say. I, I kind of just wanted to give everybody my take on what went down. And in a way, I'm glad it took me a couple weeks here to get this out there because I didn't want to really, you know, insert myself into all this. A lot of people kind of made this about themselves. And that's not my thing. I don't want to do that. Uh, I've never been that kind of person or, or broadcaster or journalist or, or entertainer or whatever the hell you want to call me. I'm not somebody that immediately needs to jump in and, and say, you know, let me weigh in because my perspective is important. I, I, I don't feel that way. Now here, a couple of weeks removed, there were things I wanted to say. And I feel like I have kind of said them here. And, and uh, again, thank you to all the folks who reached out. Obviously, I was clearly fine from all of this. Uh, aside from being emotionally shook up and uh, pretty perturbed by what went down. And uh, let's hope we never have to go through this again, because it was really uh, troubling on a, on a deep and profound level. And I guess it, we have to move on. We have to uh, continue onward. And that's what we do here on Banal of America. So on that note... Let me give you the means to contact me if you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. You can head on over to Banal of America and click the contact button. Or you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F. E.com. That is BOA's Paranormal Playground, where we discuss the world of pop culture as well as esoterica. And, of course, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter 
Just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and my profile should pop right up. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And, of course, let's take a moment here and plug Benal of America on Facebook. You can find that at B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America. Punch it into Facebook. We're up to 976 likes. So if you're listening to the program and you have not liked BOA yet on Facebook, punch in Benal of America and like us. The person who is our 1,000th like will get a shout-out here on the program, and I'll probably have to throw some shout-outs to people who are numbers 999 and 1001 because they just narrowly missed the cutoff. But shout-outs in the future for those folks who hit us on the milestone like. Now let's give the requisite shout-out to the BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. BOA 3.0 is very, very close to launching. Hopefully, in the next few weeks, we will roll out the new Banal of America for everybody to check out. So stay tuned to Banal of America, because we are about to take it to the next level, my friends. Considering that it has been way too long since the last edition of the program, we are going to skip out on asking for donations. I want to give a big thanks to the folks who did donate after my call for help there at the beginning of the month. Thanks to those folks who stepped up and contributed to the BOA franchise. You know who you are. It is greatly appreciated. I will hit you up once again for donations on the next edition of the program. On that note, let me plug the next edition of BOA Audio. You will not have to wait nearly as long for that installment of the show as you have had to wait for this one. Our guest will be Dr. Tyler Cokejohn, who is a very good friend of our friends at Paratopia and Project Archivist. He is a microbiologist. He is working on a cure for Alzheimer's, and he is someone with a deep interest in the world of the paranormal. He reached out to me following the Sharon Hill edition of the program with his kudos and thanks for that episode, and I reached out back to him and said, let's do a program, man, because I've heard some of your stuff on Paratopia and Project Archivist, and I think he'd be an awesome guest for BOA Audio. That suspicion was confirmed when we sat down and had a conversation that lasted well over three hours, talking about just a whole host of topics, including the world of the paranormal, the challenges of getting the paranormal research to be looked at and acknowledged by mainstream science, as well as a whole bunch of health-related stuff, such as the dangers of emerging diseases and a whole slew of other stuff. I'm kind of grasping here to recap that because we taped the conversation about six weeks ago, and as I said, it's three and a half hours long. So it's just jam-packed. It is absolutely slammed with stuff, and 
when we wrapped up the conversation, I knew we could have gone another two, three, four more hours talking. It was just that smooth and uh, definitely one that I think the BOA audio listeners are going to absolutely love. That's Dr. Tyler Cokejohn on the next edition of Banal of America Audio Season 7. It is the first episode of the final four of Season 7. It'll be episode number 730 meaning we've only got a handful of programs here left as we wrap up Season 7. So be sure to tune in, my friends. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to William Michael Mott for coming on the show. Thank you to all the folks out there who put up with my lengthy rant and ramble here at the end of the program. Kind of wanted to just... Clear the deck a little bit, get this off my mind, and uh, start fresh as we move forward here on Season 7. And I appreciate all the folks who tuned in here and uh, let me vent. Thank you. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners, the ones who are tuning in here to the very end of the program. You are the fuel that drives the BOA mothership. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.